Hello, everyone, and welcome to Roll Up, the official Phil Singer Games podcast. I am your co-host, Sam Fain, joined by the tournament master, Todd Gershel. Todd, how are you this evening? I am doing great, Sam. Uh, looking forward to another cool week. Of, yeah. Uh, Phil Singer Games, actually, we got a lot of stuff going on this week. We do. It's funny because there's something about this particular teaser season, and I don't know if it's because it's wrapped up, obviously, in the road to the holidays or what, but there's something about this particular teaser season that just seems to be, I don't know, I, 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 there, there's something that I feel a little bit more hyped up about, which is odd, because I feel like I've been, you know, I knew that Angle and Backland were going to be in the Trago Synthes set, for instance. And right. so I like the anticipation of those names being announced was huge. Uh, but at the same time, um, I don't know. I feel like a little bit more excited right now for teaser season than I have been, which is so well, strange. Well, I think you've been a little bit more closer to some of these things and some of the you know decisions going in and stuff like that. So maybe a little closer to some of the sets, especially the Indies one. So I could see that. You know, yeah, the excitement of like, all right, I just want to see this come out that I know I've had, you know, you, you've been right. involved in many parts of the stages there, along with, you know, obviously Ty is doing a lot of the stats, but you've been helping out as well with uh, certain parts of it as well. So I'm sure that I know Memphis, you've been, you know, hearing some, hearing some of the names and kind of knowing <laughs> some of the decisions there. So yeah yeah that's very true and there's that anticipation of just sort of like god i hope people like it you know um but people definitely seem seem jazzed uh about the legend set obviously getting a lot of buzz over on the boards as they always do um people are you know guessing at names uh speculating at what might be coming and, and talking about obviously what has been announced which is always cool to see um and we've got, you know, we've got a lot to cover and we've got a really cool interview uh, with Mark James coming up as our, as our main event. So let's just dive right in, you know, and, and speaking of teasers and, and legends, uh, we got the announcement this week that the Moondogs, Rex and Spot are coming to Legends of Wrestling. Yeah, definitely very cool. Uh, you know, I think, you know, whether you're uh, more of a Northeast fan or more <laughs> of a Memphis fan, I think either way, you could uh, definitely enjoy these guys. Yeah, uh, I completely agree. It was funny when I was, um, you know, doing a little bit of research for the teaser, I, you know, I was familiar with the fact that they had been in WWF, uh, knew that they had won the championship, knew about the whole, you know, that, um, oh God, now I'm going to completely forget his name, but I knew that Moondog King was originally with Moondog Rex and then he had some border issues. And so then that was when um, Moondog Spot, you know, Larry Latham came in to join Randy Colley, who was uh, Moondog Rex, and uh, that, that that was the tag team. The funny thing is they'd already won the tag team championships, so in a way it's like Larry Latham just got to, got to slide in and, and become a tag team champion in WWF. But, mm-hmm. uh, and then, you know, they drifted on down to uh, Memphis. And the funny thing is, is I didn't really know much about them post that. Like, you know, I knew they went to Memphis. I knew that they had, a, you know, headline feud there, but I didn't really know everything that came after. And uh, it's crazy. They were, I mean, they were around for quite a while um, and there were different iterations of the team, obviously, but I think Rex and Spot certainly are the ones that everyone is most familiar with. And, and they're the ones that had the biggest impact. Um, and it, it was really interesting to me that when they came back to the Memphis territory, when it was the USWA in the nineties, uh, they actually had a feud, um, that was voted uh, feud of the year in personally illustrated, um, uh, with, um, uh, variations of like Waller, Jarrett, like, you know, other, other teams and ensembles there that, that they kind of were going up against, but, um, and they had, and they had like a whole, 
stable full of moon dogs at that point i think moon dog cujo was uh was another one that they brought in um the the predecessor to the dudleys huh yeah yeah right uh but what a what a cool team and i think they they add uh, a lot of texture to this set uh to any fed in general um you know we've certainly had some kind of you know brawling hardcore teams in the past and and i think that they're probably uh you know reminiscent mostly of, of the sheep herders um which we you know have as a tag team but uh but the moon dogs were no pun intended a, a breed of their own you know they they really <laughs> were pretty pretty incredible for their time and i think that what they did down in Memphis when they first got there uh, is, is they helped to just set things on fire. I, I mean, people were so invested in that feud that they had, and it was uh, it was kind of a proving ground, I think, for both teams and the fans benefited. And they that series of matches was just, you know, there weren't a lot of clean finishes. Uh, there, there weren't they, you know, so many DQs, count outs, you know, tables, chairs, other objects, and lots and lots of blood. Uh, and And I think that, they'll bring a heck of a lot to, to any promotion. And, you know, again, like you said, the, their time spent in the Northeast is, is certainly not unremarkable. They were the WWF tag team champions, uh, took the titles off of Rick Martel and Tony Gurria. And um, I think, I think that they're a really great get for the game. Um, and, and I think that, you know, without, without talking out of hand too much, the fact that, there was there was some speculation as to whether or not they were actually going to be in the set or not right up until it was time to write that teaser is a cool story in and of itself you know and right, it's right. sort of like it's like that's the way it happens sometimes you know you just you you get the news and you're like all right it's go time let's do it so yep exactly <laughs> so very cool very cool to have them in the game no absolutely yeah unfortunately i kind of like when i got into into wrestling at wwf they had kind of moved they had just moved on uh, from WWF, so I missed them there, and I didn't really follow any Memphis. I didn't, I didn't get really to watch much of the Moon Dogs, kind of growing up there. So yeah, I've seen some of the stuff later on and and whatnot. But uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, definitely, I think it's a great team. Yeah, great, you know, great other fit, you know, within everything else that that we have going on. And I don't, know, we'll see. Maybe, uh, maybe there'll be another national rivalry for them coming up soon we'll see i don't know i don't know <laughs> you never can tell never you can never tell. can tell um well I, you know there's plenty of teams to throw them up against especially some of the pretty boy teams uh that that we have uh in the game already that you know mixing it up with the moon dogs would be a natural kind of you know contrast and a rivalry uh or at the same time you know put them in there with some other bruisers and brawlers just like the sheep herders and let them mm-hmm. let them go and hey, moon dogs versus Bichon, sheep herders sounds you know, real like, real enticing right there right, right? I, I completely agree um but it, again i just think that this set's going to be a hell of a lot of fun the moon dogs are indicative of that um then of course we have um, the announcement for FTR three, which is vacant. Vacant is getting an update, and uh, as I mentioned off mic, as the kids say, looks like he's had a bit of a glow up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, uh, he's 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 looking uh, looking pretty ripped there, pretty uh, kingly almost. You know, yep. like he's uh, yeah, um, he's in charge, and it'll be interesting to see you know stat wise what uh, what his bump up here looks like. I can only imagine it's a bump up. Yeah. Uh, unless Rob's going to, you know, swerve us, no pun intended. And don't. <laughs> uh, give us, give us, uh, give us some sort of downgrade. Um, 
no, I, I think it's really cool. He's he's a very interesting character. Uh, I know I enjoyed. I've I've I haven't rolled out a ton of matches, unfortunately, uh, with my FTR guys. But uh, the matches I've had with him have been a lot of fun, actually, and I like the character a lot. Yeah, I think he had a nice uh, nice little run in the tournament that we uh, did right. last year too. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, I think uh, yeah, I think he'll be. Yeah, he's got a little bit of an upgrade here. He's got kind of like a high profile feud going on uh for the upcoming set there so i think you know giving him uh, that up- upgrade uh will definitely uh definitely be a good thing you know i think it really kind of gets more into the you know cannibal the headhunter type uh you know level with some of some of that so yeah i think he'll be a be a great addition there i think yeah i forget exactly there's i think about the set is maybe about a half upgrade half updates and half new characters in it so uh but i think this is definitely one that that there'll be a uh you know well-deserved uh upgrade to it yeah i i you know that's one of been i think one of the cool things about ftr is that rob hasn't been shy about you know dishing out upgrades when um you know it made sense and the the storyline that he's plotted out has has given him the opportunity to really grow some of these characters which i think you know, we've talked about this before but one of the things that drew me to the game initially all those years ago it, you know is reading in the ads in pwi about how you know, the characters would grow, get better, yeah. change, retire, etc. I just, that really attracted me to it. And I think Rob has capitalized on that in a really cool way. And um, this set in particular, knowing that it's kind of the culmination of some of uh, his, his ideas uh, is, is really cool. And, and I'm really, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting a look at the characters um, and, and the new stats. Um, you know, I, I've had a chance to kind of glance through, uh, for, for like proofreading, uh, some of the, some of the booklet and stuff. So, um, the, the story is definitely cool and, uh, yeah, vacant will be a hell of a lot of fun, uh, to use. So, um, and then next up for our, uh, women of the Indies international edition, we have the arm collector, Jessica Troy, uh, 24 years young, but already a seven year pro in the business. So, uh, she got her start early. Um, she's just such an awesome talent. Uh, I, I've been a big fan of her since the first time I saw her over at Shimmer, um, probably about, what was that, four years ago, I think now? Mm-hmm. Um, a little over four years ago, I guess. It's been about four and a half years. But uh, she's just has, she was great when I first saw her. And, and one of the things that's amazing is that she's she kind of has this unassuming look. You know, she's, she's kind of small, um, you know, pretty thin, uh, um, she you're kind of afraid that that somebody's going to break her uh and uh <laughs> and, and then you know she gets in the ring and she's just incredible and and she's uh i've seen her play heel play baby face um she's you've know, got that versatility um she's got a strong mat game um her strikes are really solid so she's just a heck of a talent and i think it's a really great get for the game um and you know up until recently unfortunately you know as, as luck would have it it's like the the phil singer games curse uh she just lost uh, her uh, PWWA championship, which she had held for, I believe, a, almost a year. Um, I can't imagine I, they were doing too many shows down in Australia in this time. So, yeah. Right, right. Uh, no, I guess she, oh, I guess, God, I guess it looks like she held it. Um, 
yeah, she held it for, uh, well, maybe more anyway, uh, quite a long time. She, she held it for quite a long time. Uh, but unfortunately just recently lost it, uh, to Sam Osborne. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I'm super glad that she's in the game and I think, uh, whether or not, you know, singles tag, whatever she's doing, she's certainly someone to watch and, uh, it's a cool addition. Yeah. Yeah. I got to see her, uh, a couple of years ago as part of uh, Chikara King of Trios, Mm. Uh, the last King of Trios I went to, uh, she was there part of the nation's team, uh, with Mick Moretti and I forget who the other partner on the team was, but yeah, definitely very impressive. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, I, I, the great, great addition to the game, one that we've been kind of holding and kind of waiting on a little bit, uh, but just obviously this seemed like the, obviously the right time uh, to get her into the game and, you know, have a representative, uh, from Australia, which has a, you know, very prominent women's, um, you know, rep- representation, you know, throughout, throughout the, the globe. Yeah. There's a lot of great women that have come from Australia. Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, and, uh, you know, you think about Madison Eagles, even from that first shimmer set, um, you know, that's to the, I mean, even still, that's still one of the strongest like women's cards that's been statted and released by Phil Singer games because Madison Eagles is, you know, you know, it has been consistently over the past decade, probably just one of the top in ring talents, um, out of Australia. Uh, she's, she's incredible. Um, and you know, she had a match a couple of years ago with Diana Perazzo, uh, that, that just, I thought was out of this world. Great. And then she had the rematch. Um, I could be getting this out of order. Either the first match was here in Chicago and the rematch was down in Florida or vice versa. But anyway, both matches were fantastic. Uh, and unfortunately they never got the rubber match because I think that was around when Perazzo got signed, uh, to NXT, which of ah. course they, you know, really didn't do much with her, but that's, that's besides the point. Yeah. Um, She's doing well now. I will say that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Um, she's she's definitely, I think, kind of secured her her position um, on on the national landscape. But um, but yeah, I, I, the the international flavor of this set is so cool. The fact that we have been able to collect um, you know these women from different parts of the globe and bring them together under the banner of this set, I think, is awesome. You know, one of the great things too about the women in this set is the fact that not only are you know the vast majority of them, you know, with the exception of Hyann, um, all from other countries besides the United States, but the other focus that we kind of had and we talked about going into this is that we wanted women that had worked internationally. So it's not just about getting someone who, you know, happened to have been born in, you know, Germany or whatever, but worked only in the United States or, you know, it's like most of these women have, you know, done tours in Japan, worked in the UK, worked in Canada, worked, you know, in Mexico in some cases. And, and Jessica Troy is a perfect example of that. You know, she's worked all over the globe, you know, the UK, Australia, Japan, the United States. And so, uh, I, I think that you know she really is kind of indicative of the theme of the set and um there are some other women from down under that i wish we could grab uh i don't know i don't know if we will maybe we already have you never can tell but uh she's she's definitely a, a worthy a worthy addition to this set no definitely no glad, glad to have her in there and uh yeah again hopefully we'll uh now she's had uh, some other partners over the years. That would be nice to have as well. Hopefully, uh, we'll we'll maybe uh, get a hold of them in, in the future. Then we'll see. One can only hope. One can only hope. We can keep things blue. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, those are the teasers uh, for the week. Uh, we've got some more uh, teasers coming up, obviously on uh, Friday for Legends of Wrestling, um, <clears throat> and we'll discuss all of that. 
next week on the episode. Uh, of course, as I mentioned, we've got Mark James, famed Memphis wrestling historian and author uh, with the interview uh, for our main event. And we'll talk about uh, all of the names that have thus far been announced. So you'll get to kind of hear his take on them, which is, which is really cool. Uh, but before, be but before we do that, um, you know, it's, we're recording this on a Sunday evening, November the 14th. Uh, I don't know if anybody listening is aware uh, but there was a little show last night. Really? Yeah, there was. There oh, was. Interesting. interesting. Uh, I could try to play it cool, but I can't help it. Uh, the payoff for a two-year-plus storyline came last night in the main event of AEW Full Gear, and it was the culmination of really one of the best slow burn storylines I, I I have seen in professional wrestling in probably at least 30 years. Um, it, it was, it was so satisfying. Um, and so much of it was so well done. Uh, the fact that that match might not have even been the best match on the card, as far as like, you know, the, the, the work rate or whatever you want to call it in the ring is just a testament to how great the show was overall. I think, um, yeah, Todd, what would, would just, Spit some of your overall thoughts about <laughs> AEW Full Gear 2021. Uh, I mean, just overall, just, you know, some great, great matches and just uh, amazing, amazing uh, work by so many guys. Uh, I mean, overall, was I surprised by many of the outcomes? No. But was I entertained by how we got to there? Oh, hell yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, just it just kind of started off. I, I was wondering how they were going to start it off. I thought they might start off with like the six man false count anywhere match. That's what I was kind of assuming might start it off there, but they started right off with uh, MJF and Darby Allen, which was like an insane, you know, car crash at times and just like just a. A great story, just overall, like you know how they were, you know, you know, working on different body parts and you know different things were being brought in, and then you know, the, then in the end, MJF did exactly what he said he was going to do the entire time, which he <laughs> always does. <Yeah. laughs> so he's going to beat him with a headlock takeover, and that he did. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, not before he he you know low blowed him in grand style or no, not low blowed him. Uh, no, no, he hit him with that diamond the, ring. Yeah. yeah, that's right. The diamond ring. Uh, um, Cause heels cheat, you know, it's, it's, it's right. simple stuff, man. Yeah. That match was absolutely incredible. And I thought to myself, this is going to be hard to top, you know, those two guys went out there and it's, and it's funny because a guy who got a lot of, you know, nods throughout the evening, including one from Darby Allen and MJF uh, is Eddie Guerrero. It was the 16th. Oh, there's a lot of Eddie Guerrero love last night. Yeah. Uh, And I'll never forget. I can't remember which pay-per-view it was now, but I remember that there was a WWF pay-per-view and um, Eddie Guerrero was going on first. And now I just cannot for the life of me remember who he was going on first with, but the guy that he was going on first with apparently said something to the effect of like, yeah, I can't believe they're putting us first. And Eddie Guerrero was like, oh, I don't care that they're putting us first because now everybody's going to have to go out there and try to top it. And that was the oh, thing yeah. that I feel like MJF and Darby Allen did is they were like, oh, I don't care that we're going out first, but now everybody's going to have to try and follow it. And um, I think that, you know, there are some people that don't quite understand or comprehend 
that that kind of energy and that kind of like competitiveness backstage really only elevates the whole, you know, it's one of those cases where it's like, you know, some people think that you should have that first match, just be a slow burn or whatever, you know, just kind of get it over in five or 10 minutes. And, you know, and that's that, but you know, those guys went out there for 22 minutes and just tore the house down. And I think that there's a very good chance that those same two guys could be in the main event of full gear 22. Um, and, and I think that that symmetry is absolutely intentional because that's what Tony Khan is doing right now. You know, he's, 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 he's building long-term stories. He's, you know, we might've closed the book on on the first chapter of AEW last night. And now we're going to start working on chapter two on Wednesday. Um, it's, you know, there are a lot of divisive uh, opinions, I think out there. Uh, you know, some folks are, are just, born and bred WWE folks. And, and that's all that they want to watch. Some people, you know, uh, uh, only watch the old stuff. You know, they're, they're, they're just hoarding their tapes and their DVDs and uh, don't care to watch anything that's new. Um, you know, some people are into whatever it is they're into and that's totally fine. I, I'm not going to you know judge or, or criticize anybody for that. What I will say is a match like this is one of those matches that I watch. And I just have to say, how is it that people can't see that this is great? You know, um, mm-hmm. and, and, and there were, and there were, and there were probably at least two other matches on the card that I felt that way about as well. Um, yeah, just the old, old school psychology in a yeah. lot of these two. Yeah. 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 Well, and the, it, it, you know, and that's the thing too, the storytelling of this match, you know, it's not all just pace and work rate and, and all that sort of stuff, the psychology of the match and, and, and the story that they told in the match and the investment of that live crowd, like that live crowd that they had, I don't, there's only two other times that I feel like that this, that the crowd was as hot as they were in that opening match. Um, that's just, it was just incredible. Uh, you're worth noting also when I mentioned Eddie Guerrero earlier, not only was this the 16th anniversary of his death, but he died in Minneapolis. Right. In Minneapolis. Yeah. Um, yeah. 16 years ago to the day. Yeah. 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 So, so I think that, you know, a lot of people obviously had him uh, on their mind and there were two yep. people specifically that we'll get to later um, that, that, you know, clearly did and paid, paid major tribute. Um, we have the tag team title match between the Lucha brothers and FTR Um I, again, you know, the thing that was great too, is the way that these matches were different. This match felt very different than that first match. Um, and I mean, Ray Phoenix does stuff sometimes that I'm just kind of like, that's nobody else on the face of the planet is, is wrestling the way that Ray Phoenix wrestles. And there are, you know, and there are a few guys out there that you could say that about, but Ray Phoenix is definitely a unique and special kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just uh, just his, his balance and, and everything that he can just do is just it's just mind blowing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and then you put them up against FTR, and there might not be two better tag team wrestlers on the face of the planet than Dax Harwood and Cash Wheeler, sure. um, with the exception maybe of Matt and Nick Jackson. I mean, the, the FTR is that good. Like they they just and and they're and they're good in a very like specific kind of way and it's not all just old school i know that they're you know that they're the the fists and kicks no flips stuff or whatever that that they pride themselves on but the truth of the matter is it's like they've got some innovative offense along with all the kind of old school nods that they do and um and it was a fun match uh and and i i feel like you know the lucha brothers winning was um you know was probably the right choice uh uh and it's and i don't think that this is the end by any means. Um, the finish was a little weird, kind of took the wind out of the sails for me in a little bit. I, I don't know that it worked in the way that they thought it was going to, uh, but 
I mean, everything that came before that was just so much fun. I didn't really yeah. care. <laughs> yeah. There was a couple of finishers here or there that were, didn't go off just quite right, but you know, overall. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then there was one point too, where they did a, uh, um, you know, a three amigos and, and frog splash spot that really could have been the end of the match. You know, it was one of those things where it's just sort of like, they might've guilt the Lily a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I thought it was nice how like, uh, Dax Harwood was going to do the three amigos, yeah. and then on, before the third one, they got stopped, and then did the whole thing. They, you know, did the whole three amigos plus the fog sweat. I thought that was a a great spot right there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, next up, we got another you know contender for match of the night with Brian Danielson taking on Miro. Um, what a great match! Like again, this is just one of those matches where I just want to say, like, if, if if you can't watch this match as a wrestling fan and realize this is great pro wrestling, I don't, I, I don't understand. Like, I cannot comprehend it. It does not make any sense to me because the match that they had was just so good. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I feel like again, the pace was entirely different than the the, the previous two matches. Uh, the story that they were telling was different. Like, that's the other thing that helps to make it. Uh, for me was that it felt different. Um, you know, and again, people might criticize it, but our first three matches all went about 20 minutes. So, you know, we've got an hour of professional wrestling just within our first three matches. Uh, for me, I love it. And for anybody out there that's going like, Oh, they should have thrown in a sprint or a squash or whatever. It's just sort of like, nah, nah, I'm cool. I'm cool. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, I think overall, I think the shortest match was the women's match, you know, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, well, you know, what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> so, Actually, still, there, I think it was, was... Given more, I think it was probably given more, more time than the entire like uh queen's crown tournament. Still, yeah, yeah, but... <laughs> exactly. yeah. I think there was like two minutes of actual wrestling in that entire queen's crown tournament, <laughs> literally two minutes. Yeah, That's yeah, insane. Yeah. Um, but it was a great match. I love the finish. I thought the finish was just awesome. Uh, and, and it's funny because Uncharted Territory, uh, I was listening to, because uh, I was a little bit behind, but I was listening to their Ring of Honor episode recently. And, you know, they were talking about some of the stuff with like, you know, Brian Danielson and just the way that his matches were kind of laid out um, and his finishes in particular and how kind of difficult it was to stat his card originally because he didn't necessarily, you know, he didn't use the same finisher. Like he didn't, because he still doesn't believe in finishers. You know, he thinks that... Yeah. You know that, that, that yeah anything can kind of be a finisher, and that's the thing in this match. That's kind of exactly what happened. It wasn't you know it wasn't a, a case of just sort of like oh he he hit the you know he's like I he hit the knee whatever I can't talk right now. Uh, I've had like four hours of sleep, but uh, and then uh, you know or, or he locked in the label lock or whatever. It, you know it wasn't that, and uh, I, I just loved it. I thought it was really cool. And he still he still hasn't won the same um, two matches the same way yet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Well, I think the end, the, the end, like, I think he, uh, there's a really cool move that came bringing down like the DDT into the, into the submission, into the kind of choke out move, which I think slipped a little bit, but he, you know, had to recover, but yeah, you know, otherwise I thought it was a pretty cool, cool way to finish it though. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the DDT looked brutal too, like, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and Miro sold it perfectly. Sure. Uh, it, it's funny because at this point, you know, there were some people on Twitter saying like, Oh, I guess this means Omega when you know retains the title tonight. And I was sort of like, well, like, that's, that just, no, like, come on yeah, guys. People are thinking with their <laughs> WWE brain too. Exactly. Much. Yeah. exactly. Uh, then we got that false count anywhere match with uh, Christian cage and Jurassic express jungle boy and Luchasaurus taking on the super click Adam Cole and the young bucks, Matt and Nick Jackson. Uh, <laughs> 
this match was just a hell of a lot of fun. And there were only, you know, the funny thing is, is that sometimes I try to kind of look at, at matches and think to myself, okay, you know, what would the critics say about this match? And, and there were only a couple of instances where I kind of thought like, maybe that was a little over the top, but at the same time, it's so on brand for the kind of over the top stuff that they're known for that I, that it's hard for me, you know, as a fan to kind of really, to kind of say like, well, that ruins it. Cause it doesn't, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, they just poured tax into jungle boy's mouth and kicked him in the face. In my mind, that should be, you know, kind of a kill shot. But at the same time, we, you know, it, it's, we, we know that that's not the case. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't mind it. I think storyline wise, this match was about one guy in spite of the fact that there were six people, you know, participating in the match. And that was jungle boy. Oh yeah. The, the way that Tony Khan and the roster helped to tell the story of the four pillars of AEW, uh, I was so incredibly spot on in this night um and and jungle boy came out of this match looking every bit the pillar that he needs to look he's got his edge you know he's got i said this is all about him building that edge up you know he got the start it was not a mistake that he started getting the scruff you know it started you know looking a little bit more kind of like that next level jungle boy not like not like the kid now he's kind of you know growing up and you know at the, the beginning of the part of the match is like oh should i hit him with the chair you know it was yeah it was right. then, like at the by the end of it it's like all right i need to take care of this and put him away and christian's like yeah you're the man to do it yeah and, you know took him out and then that was it and i think it was a great you know great way to end it that you know just completing that that kind of transformation a little bit of jungle boy yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, up until this point, like he, he, he just so been that white meat baby face. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like what they said about Ricky, the dragon steamboat back in the eighties. It's like, there's no way you could turn him heel. He could go out to the ring with a chainsaw and cut Hulk Hogan's arms off and he still wouldn't be, you know, booed. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's kind of like, that's kind of like jungle boy. It's like, he could do just about anything and he wouldn't get booze. And not that that's, you know, at all what this is about, but it was about being able to take him from being that ultra white meet baby face and give him you know give him that edge uh and 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 elevate him at the same time so uh worked beautifully and i think we're still going to get some jungle boy adam cole matches probably yep. out of this which i'm totally there for because i thought their match that they had a, a couple of weeks ago was great and 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 the other thing too is like i don't think we're going to see that match anytime soon like i wouldn't be surprised if we don't see that match until february or even later, you know, I think that they'll probably kind of keep them in orbit of one another. But I, again, you know, Tony Khan isn't Russian stuff and he's not giving us the same matches again and again and again mm-hmm. and again and again. And, and we're benefiting for it as, as fans. Um, speaking of divisive, we got a divisive match with Cody Rhodes and Pac taking on Malachi Black and Andrade El Idolo. <sighs> Look, people just like to boo Cody right now. <laughs> I hate it. I think it's dumb, but whatever, you know. Even, even the announcers during were like, ah, okay, they're trying to like me. All right, I guess this is why people are going him. I don't know. I mean, yeah. is it the John Cena thing? I don't. I don't know. Like, I think it. Know. I think it kind of is in a way. Yeah, it's you know, and whatever. I mean, let, let let people do whatever they want. I think that there are some people that still haven't like forgiven him, if you will, or gotten over his promo. Uh, from a little while back where he was talking about his daughter, you know, being born and, uh, yeah. you know, the, the, some of the sort of the, the, the weird kind of, you know, 
I don't know, whatever. Anyway, uh, the match was good. I, I, again, it was different. You know, that was the thing that was really cool is it felt like a very different kind of match from what we'd seen before. Um, this was our first match that, you know, didn't go quite 20 minutes. Right. Uh, and, uh, I, yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was fun. Um, and I, I'm looking forward to kind of seeing some of the interactions between these guys afterwards. Cause I think there's going to be some cool stuff uh, down the road. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's interesting. A good way to get all four of the guys onto the the pay per view. Yes. There. Yeah. 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 And I mean, Malachi Black and Andrade are clearly like two guys that, uh, are, you know, have have a really strong place on this on this card in this promotion. And I think that they're going to get to do some really cool stuff. And I think Malachi Black, like, there's a good chance that, uh, you know, he could take a, a run at the title. You know, anytime really. You know, uh, sure. and, and I think the you know, the idea of maybe Black and Hangman Page having a little something down the road would be great. You know, I'm not saying that he's going to win the title, uh, you know, but, but I think that, you know, again, that could be, that could be a cool feud eventually if, if it goes in that direction. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I'm interested to see where, where black goes. Obviously he's been the whole, his whole story so far has just been with Cody, but yeah, obviously it's gonna, he's going to go somewhere. So yeah, I'm interested to see where that, where that's going to lead him. Cause very intriguing character for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, then we had our AEW women's world championship match between Dr. Britt Baker, DMD taking on Ty Conti. Um, you know, it's interesting because I felt like the, the, this match, uh, it's so strange. It, I felt like the match was built really well. And I felt like kind of the hype surrounding the match was, was really well done. I was really interested in seeing it. I don't know if it was maybe just a little bit of fatigue by this time in the show, which is only yeah. natural uh, yeah. or what, but it, but I, I have to be honest and, and, I, and I'll say that, you know, after the initial like minute or two of the match, there seemed to be kind of a bit of a lull and, and they didn't really get things back until maybe about the 10 minute mark. Um, but boy, did I love the last like five minutes of this match. I thought the last five minutes or so of this match were just stellar. I thought Ty Conti looked like a million bucks, the best she's ever looked. Um, and, and I thought that Brit, you know, did everything that Brit does so well. Um, and, you know, the finish of the match, I think, again, it's one of those situations where we kind of all saw it coming a mile away. But the thought that I had over the course of this match you know, all, all criticisms aside is that Britt Baker is absolutely playing the Ric Flair role. She goes into the oh, ring. Yeah. She gets her ass kicked for however long that match is going to go on. She makes whoever she's in the ring with look like a million bucks. And then she, she wins. Sometimes she cheats to win. Sometimes she just, you know, gets that, that last little burst and, and takes out the opponent or whatever the case may be. But like, it, she's having the Ric Flair effect as far as I'm concerned, because Ty Conti came out of this match looking better than she has ever looked before. Right. Yeah. I mean, given her record, I mean, it's, it's, they've obviously been trying to build her up there, but yeah, I think this has probably made her look the best she has for sure. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, unfortunately I, I, I kind of, that, that, that part you said was kind of a lull. Uh, unfortunately I kind of skipped that part. I had to like take care of a couple of things at home and I'm like, all right, well, this is probably a fine time to, to do that. You know, I had to get my son to bed and things like that. So I missed that part, but kind of came in right, you know, for the last like five, six minutes and really enjoyed that. So yeah. I, I guess I kept, I caught the right part of it there. So. Yeah. Yeah. I will definitely. Um, then the next match we had, uh, I'll tell you what, and I would lay down this gauntlet to anyone listening to this podcast who doesn't enjoy us talking about AEW. If you watch this match 
and you don't like it as a pro wrestling fan, then I question whether or not you're a fan of pro wrestling. <laughs> I mean it. Like, I'm that serious. Because Eddie Kingston and CM Punk had one of the best damn fights I have ever seen in a professional wrestling ring. Like, these guys went in there and just, it was incredible. And not incredible in some sort of scientific, you know, contest sort of way. Not in, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't anything else that we'd seen before on this card it felt like a real fight. Yeah. It felt so genuine and the hate and the story that they told throughout the course of the match, it was incredible. And CM Punk is, is, is what? Like, you know, uh, two months into his return, you know, what has he had? Like four or five matches? Yeah. Yeah. He's like three months, three months since they debuted. And yeah, probably about uh, maybe sixth match by now. Okay. Yeah. Six, six matches. The guy looks like he's never missed a beat at this point. Mm-hmm. He, he, he just, he, he, he's, he's just so good. Uh, and had one of the, you know, more emotional Eddie Guerrero tributes of the night uh, in the ring, because obviously Eddie was a huge hero and influence yeah. on him. Um, he had the honor of wrestling him when he was on the Indies. And so, yeah, this match had everything. And, uh, you know, like I said, I was, my heart, honestly, as much as I love CM Punk was with Eddie Kingston. Um, I, I think there's a lot of people because, you know, yeah. I think Eddie Kingston did something that we probably didn't think was very possible and got a whole arena of people to boo CM Punk. Yeah. Which I don't think any people expected to happen, you know? Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, he, people were behind him. I mean, that, I, I, how can you not be? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, what what an incredible story they told and to think that to think that they that they built this match up in like what two weeks well that's the thing yeah it's like it was only like yeah two weeks ago when they had their first confrontation you know after like a rampage match it's like oh they're gonna put this in the pay-per-view then suddenly it was like wow this is definitely one of the ones i'm most looking forward to and like yeah like with like such little build it was it was pretty crazy well and it's it's so fantastic because i mean that just tells you the strengths of this of this roster and 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 this you know and and tony khan is that like you can have these you know storylines that play out over months or even years and then you can also have these you know these these rivalries that might develop in a flash and yet the brilliant thing is, is they, they underneath, you know, it's kind of like that iceberg theory in, in, in art is there's yeah. so much stuff underneath what we're seeing that goes back years and years and years and years and years. And, and to kind of get that, you know, it really gets a crowd, I think, emotionally invested quickly. And then of course, Eddie Kingston, you know, releasing that article that he wrote about his struggles and it's just like such good stuff. I, I mean, that's, that's where it's at for me. Um, you know, punk got some color, um, really added to the drama of the match. Uh, the, the finish was great. Uh, he, I mean, Punk literally hit probably two of the best like GTSs I've ever seen him hit ever in his career ever. Um, and and, oh, yeah, and the first one was crazy. Yeah. Oh god, yeah, that first one was incredible. And the thing is, is it's like I I I mean this. That might be one of my favorite CM Punk matches ever. And it was, and it was, and here's the other thing. Here's the kicker about this because it's such a reversal of everything else that I've talked about with the length of the matches. This match was only a little over 10 minutes long. Right. That's the other thing that's kind of incredible. So it just, yeah, I, I, I could go on and on. I, I thought this was so superb. Um, and, and I think in a lot of ways is my match of the night. And I thought that the, you know, the aftermath of the match with punk offering the handshake and, yeah. and Kingston. And the, you know, the interesting thing is, and another nice little piece of storytelling, Kingston didn't like slap his hand away. Kingston didn't like, you know, he, he just laughed. 
Right, right. You know, which is again, I think, just an interesting layer uh, to to the story. And I'll be was it like? Does he think he's just like he's not worthy of the respect that that pet punk gave him? Is that kind of the, the thinking there? Right. I mean, yeah. I, I, it'll be really interesting to see exactly how they how they play on that because yeah. I, because because Kingston walked out of the ring a beaten man, not you know, not angry, not you know, not defiant, not I don't respect you. But yeah, you're right. He walked out of that ring a beaten man, and there's definitely that element of like, you know, I don't deserve to shake your hand. Yeah, right. Right. I think that's a really good observation. No, awesome, awesome story told, and yeah, I mean, I hope they 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 keep some some part of it up. I don't know. Yeah, this yeah. is this is I think the first big uh, real story that Punk's had. I mean, he's had a couple of matches, and you know, kind of helping with you know some of the younger guys, but you know, you know, well, I guess well, and then uh, um what was his name? Uh, Matt Seidel, I guess mixed in there too. Right. But, uh, but yeah, I think yeah, this is kind of the first one where it's really kind of like a more of a nuanced story behind it. So we'll, we'll see if it continues or not. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, I think it will, you know, the question is obviously like, you know, like that's one of the neat things about AEW in general is like, how will it continue? You know, is this something where, you know, Punk will kind of go on his way for a little while and and, and maybe Kingston will do his own thing and then it comes back. Will it just be yeah. a constant? So yeah, it, 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 I'm looking forward to it. And I think that the other thing that, you know, was going to be fascinating to see what they do in, in the fallout from full gear and then the build to what's next is that we know that the network change is coming uh you know after the first of the year so i would imagine they want to have some really big stuff going when they hit tbs sure um so it'll be really really it'll be really really cool um well and then um uh i will say you know also for the people who are like well why you know why aren't punk and daniel and uh brian danielson like right at the top of the card is like well they're both undefeated Right. Danielson's now the number one contender. I mean, you, you, I mean, that's the thing. And like with this, it's not, you're necessarily going to push a guy right to a title match just because he came in and he's got a name. They got to like get the wins in law, you know, gets the wins together to, to justify that. Yeah. It's kind of the whole, the whole, you know, the whole beat behind this, this promotion is you have to earn those title shots. So, uh, and now we got one guy who did and, you know, punk is, you know, still undefeated and, you know, some big matches he's won. So we'll, we'll see where he goes. The presentation, the importance of the wins and losses is something that they just, they nail. And the fact that, I mean, how many times throughout the night did we hear Tony Schiavone or Excalibur or Jim Ross talk about, you know, the streaks or the, you know, uh, the, the matches that they've won or whatever, yeah. you know, it was reiterated numerous times throughout the course of the evening, you know, which wrestlers had been hot, what, you know, how many wins that they'd had in the year and, and that sort of stuff. And I think that it's, it, yeah. I mean, like, for instance, we were talking about jungle boy earlier, you know, they were hammering home the fact that like, you know, he was the first guy to ever get to 100 matches in AEW. you know, I mean, there's just so much cool stuff uh, that they do that I think just ups the importance and, and investment. And, uh, and yeah, like you said, just because these guys have a name and they come in doesn't mean that they go, you know, they don't go to the head of the line right away. They got to earn it. Um, speaking of earning it, the inner circle and the men of the year, uh, <laughs> this, well, an American top team, this, you know, rivalry that is, that has been brewing over the past month or so has been so much fun to watch. And the funny thing is, is that normally 
when we've seen stuff that Jericho is doing, it's easy to kind of just be like, man, Jericho really made that. Jericho really made that. And yeah, I mean, Jericho, like anything he touches is, is, is gold. Don't get me wrong. And, and I think the rub that like MJF got from his, you know, feud with Jericho is huge and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and helped to elevate him even more at that. And the fact that he's just incredibly talented all around, sure. but the funny thing is, is about this. And I did not like him at first. I would like, not, not in a, you know, Oh, I, you know, I'm supposed to hate him or whatever, but like, I was just sort of like, Oh God, who is this guy? And why do I care? But Dan Lambert has done some incredible work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't like, <laughs> which, which is, which means he's doing his job. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, I mean, I mean, you could kind of tell from like, I, I listened to, to Tony on the unrestricted podcast recently last week kind of breaking down the card and i mean just talk about like you know how much of like a fan of wrestling dan lambert is i'm not familiar with his i guess he did some work in impact before yeah but i mean the guy you know obviously he likes wrestling and he's playing up this character it's like but he's kind of playing like the anti-aw character which is the perfect heel to right. play you know in AEW. so i yeah and then bringing in the you know the real fighters and stuff like that i i, I think it's yeah I, I yeah at first i was kind of like well, who the hell is this guy i mean obviously i'm not a huge mma guy so i don't know you know i've i've heard of some of the guys on the team there but uh right you know i hadn't heard of dan or and america top team before but uh yeah definitely I, th- I think he did a great job for building building this up and yeah and really kind of elevating two guys who i like who's you know ethan page and scorpio sky in the process yeah um i, I thought that yeah the match ended up being a lot of fun it was interesting because you know we'd seen a street fight earlier in the evening and or yeah. false count anywhere match anyway and it was clearly you know tornado tag rules you know everybody everybody fighting all the time uh the funny thing is, is they started this match off under like normal tag rules. And uh, I was, I, I literally was just sort of like, okay, at what point does this break down? And when it does, you know, does Aubrey just let it go or, or does she, you know, does she try to maintain order? Uh, which she, she did the former, not the latter. And, you know, obviously that was the smart play, yeah. uh, but the, you know, the, the match itself was fun. Uh, you know, the two kind of unknown quantities in the match were Junior Dos Santos and Andre Arlovsky. You know, what were they going to do um, it's, you know, it's clear to, it was clear to me when watching this match that one of these guys wants to wrestle, like be a professional wrestler. And one of these guys wants to just, you know, kind of do his thing and, and do it well. But I don't think that Andre Orlovsky is going to, you know, be making a run at the title anytime soon. No. Uh, <laughs> whereas Junior Dos Santos, it's sort of like, oh man, like he gets, he gets some time under his belt, some experience under his belt. Like this might be a fun guy to watch in the ring. Sure, sure, absolutely. Yeah, he's trying to pull out what he, he pull out a standing, standing moonsault. Moonsault there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, why not? Yeah, that, that's great. You know, he's, he's playing into it. So that's great. <laughs> uh the you know, again, I felt like a lot of this match definitely made you know was about kind of uh making Sammy Guevara look you know, every bit the the pillar that he is. Sure. Um, he had some incredible moments throughout the match. And uh, I think that one of the things that's fascinating about the story that they've kind of been telling um, throughout his, you know, kind of relationship with Jericho is the idea that, you know, he, he cares deeply about Chris Jericho. And now instead of being kind of like that, that little brother, uh, they're starting to slowly become, um, not equals necessarily, but whereas before it was about kind of, you know, Guevara trying to like earn 
you know, Jericho's respect and, and kind of be like, look at me, I'm good, dad, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Now it's much more along the lines of like, you know, I'm your partner, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and that, and that definitely played a couple of times throughout the match. Um, this match had two moments that almost stole the show. One of those moments involved a favorite of our friends over at uncharted territories <laughs> and that would be the one and only baron von raschke uh, i'm not making this shit up the 81 year old baron von raschke was sitting front row for this match and uh and he put the claw on ethan page at one point and it popped the crowd something fierce <laughs> oh yeah absolutely well you, you, they showed it beforehand they're like oh that's yeah. so cool he's out there and then obviously you know once ethan goes out there and is, is he's getting in the face of um, jake hager's, jake hager's wife. wife there yeah. and then you see baron i'm like oh baron's putting the claw on him for sure and then oh yeah that that was a great great spot loved it loved it and in in a night that was filled with emotion i mean that's the other thing that i think that you know we we, we miss sometimes uh, from professional wrestling, there was so much emotion in this in this night, um, and and all of the best matches were were laced with it. Uh, one of the most emotional moments. It can't be the most because of the main event, as far as I'm concerned. But one of the most emotional moments came when Chris Jericho paid tribute to his friend Eddie Guerrero. Um, you know, just a beautiful frog splash, won the match with it, and in, in you know, in a way, it, it was just. It, it, it was just beautiful. It was beautiful. And he was clearly very emotional in the moment. Um, and uh, it was, it was, it was a cool way to end this match. Um, and I, you know, I'm very interested to see where everybody kind of goes from here in this one, because they could continue this obviously if they wanted to. Um, the, the, you know, the great thing is, is I don't think like Ethan page and Scorpio sky, I think still kind of come out of this, you know, looking good. Uh, yeah. Just because their team lost, I don't think it hurts them at all. Yeah, um, but they still got a couple wins along the way against well, right. them. Yeah, too. So exactly, exactly. Um, so yeah, just you know, again, good stuff. And then we had our main event: Hangman Adam Page and Kenny Omega for the AEW World Championship. Yep. I mean, uh, it had everything you wanted there. I mean, a cool opening uh sequence there which is you know you, you know that that that's always nice to see them build that up uh i did hear today we might get a uh aw unrivaled horse uh, to oh go along my with God. Uh, yes i might have to get one of those for for my uh, page figure uh but um but you know i think yeah just the, the kind of set the stage of just how big it you know how big it is you know just the, the, the whole story up there i mean we've been we've talked about it before about how it's been built since day one you know like yeah. you know page can't win the big one and and whatnot and you know finally coming together here him, him talking to the bucks on friday and being like you can't interfere in this one like yeah, yeah I, I'll, I'll ruin you if you do this and then with them coming out of the end it's like oh here they are but then they just let the match go which was hmm okay, where, where is this all going to go afterwards? But, uh, I would just, the emotion, yeah, just him hitting that, you know, finally hitting the, the buckshot at the end, getting the win. Um, just, just great. Just great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and the match itself was, was fantastic. They did uh, a lot of cool stuff. You know, it, it was a testament to the talents of both of those guys that they were able to pull something off that was different again from anything else that had happened 
in the evening. Um, you know, it wasn't a pure scientific contest. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't just a brawl. It wasn't just a fight. Like there was, you know, they, they, they really peppered in a little bit of everything. Um, you know, it did not feel like at no time did I feel like I was watching a match that was clearly just put together and orchestrated by Kenny Omega. Um, you, you know, I mean, some of his matches have sort of a feel to him, a flow to them that just kind of, you know, feel like a Kenny Omega special, if you will. And that's no offense to him because he's brilliant, but like uh, the, you know, the, the overall match, it just did, it just felt like it was, um, it was exactly what it needed to be. Uh, and there were some really cool moments um, and, you know, we got some, some, you know, pardon my French, we got some fuckery cause you know, of course we were going to Don Callis is at ringside. Oh, yeah. What do you expect? Yeah. Uh, but it was handled so well. Uh, and Paige just, you know, again, it was like, he had these obstacles that he had to keep getting through and he got through all of them up into the match. And then, you know, and then even in, within the match itself, the story they told was, you know, continued to be those obstacles. He had to, you know, he had to avoid the one winged angel. He had to, uh, you know, he had to take care of Don Callis, which he did. Uh, you know, he had to, to really kind of gut it out after some, hellacious bumps quite frankly yeah uh and, and then you know and, and he knew that he had to win with the buckshot lariat and he had attempted it a couple of times and you know it, it didn't work until the end and he hit two of them uh which again is also like it tells this wonderful story because it's sort of like anybody else he hits that once and they're done but he knew with kenny it was like i gotta i gotta put the nail in the coffin um and, and he, did it, the, he did the one to the back of the head yeah. first as a setup and then the regular one after that, yeah. And it was great, too, because it's like he did the one from one side of the ring where Nick Jackson was. And then he went over to the other side of the ring to do the second one, and that's where Matt Jackson was. And and there was this moment between Matt and, and Paige as Omega was getting to his feet where, like, you know, Matt Jackson kind of, like, gave him the nod. Like, this sort of, like, yeah, okay. And and and, and so Paige hit it and, and won the title. And it was just such a cool moment and, and, and it paid off so much of the storylines. Like you say, they've been building since day one, you know, at the press conference or the introduction of AEW, Hangman and Page got up there at the podium and said, I'm going to be the AEW world champion. And now here we are over two years later. And that story has been what it's been about from the get go. Um, and you look at the champions that have come before you look at Chris Jericho, here's the guy who has the name who's been everywhere. The very first, you know, undisputed champion ever. Um, you, you know, he, he's just, he's got the pedigree, right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and he comes in, he, you know, gets that title. He gets you that exposure. He gets everybody going. And then, you know, you, you, you get, then you get John Moxley and like, Again, you know, kind of proving that you can have that crossover star, you know, a guy who was a star at WWE comes over and he's a star in AEW, arguably even more of a star in AEW now uh, than he was in, in WWE. And then, you know, you get the transition into Kenny Omega, who was kind of the guy that like all along you knew had to be AEW champion at some point, right? Like it's right. like you knew yeah, that Omega had yeah. to do it, right? And then... And then you've got so many other stories layered underneath that in a way, but but the inevitability of the clash between Hangman Adam Page and Kenny Omega, like it, it just, it was so perfect. Um, and the way that they kind of brilliantly were able to use impact and the impact title to kind of build seeds of doubt along the way with Kenny Omega's championship reign. Sure. Like the idea that he does get beat by Christian for that title, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. it's like, Oh, well, you know, maybe he could lose the title, but you know, obviously again, it was, it was always about Omega and page. Oh, yeah. Um, 
And, and just what a great moment. And I'll tell you what, like I am counting the hours until we get to Wednesday. Uh, cause they're in Virginia, which is, you know, they're, they're in Paige's hometown. Like that's going to be a, that's going to be a fun night. Oh yeah, definitely. And, and again, I, I, and as you said, like, it'll be the beginning of the next chapter. So yeah, let's, let's see, you know, you know, where, where it goes from here. Cause it, right. it could be some exciting things there. But I think even, even post-match was kind of cool. You know, the dark order brings him out the beer. Yes. And he's like, nah, I don't need the beer. Yeah, one you guys. I thought that was a nice little touch at the end too. So it, it really was, you know. And 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 there's there again. There's so many layers to this story. But one of the things that has come to the forefront over the past couple of weeks with everything that's happened with Moxley entering rehab and Eddie Kingston's article being released, and you know, even the the, the promos that Paige has been cutting in the lead up to this, is that this promotion has no problems whatsoever normalizing and dealing with mental health. Yes. <laughs> you know, not only not only in real life, but even in storyline. Sure. You know, I mean he's got a t-shirt for God's sake that says anxious millennial cowboy. Like <laughs> the 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 depression, anxiety, the drinking, like all of the stuff that he has dealt with up until you know his return when he won the the ladder match and and you know to get to face Omega, like they really have told this amazing story of, of a human being kind of you know finding himself. Mm-hmm. and empowering himself to to rise above all of that you know the depression the anxiety the drinking all that sort of stuff and say i i can do this you know and and just yeah it's just an incredible moment and um i think it's it's again it's just one of those things that makes you feel good and and hits you emotionally in a way that goes beyond just watching your favorite guy win you know mm-hmm. absolutely when I, was, I think we said, uh, you know, dur- during the match there, I, I, I was right. I, I had a feeling somebody was going to kick out of a one-winged angel. Uh, That's right. And I was right. At least yeah. there. But it, was, it wasn't Paige kicking out of one. It was, you know, <laughs> Omega. I have a very good feeling that uh, we talked about this actually last week, um, not on the podcast, but just between the two of us. Kenny Omega has been dealing with a lot of injuries for a while. Uh, he has been on the record in an interview that he gave not too long ago that he could see himself winding down his career in the near future. Um, that, you know, he's all the stuff he's done has taken a toll on him. Sure. Uh, his ankles are shot. He's got a bad knee. Um, you know, I'm sure his back isn't in great shape. Uh, you know, we found out after the fact that Dave Meltzer reported that one of his shoulders is really screwed up and he, you know, he can't really bear hardly any weight on, uh, you know, or at least as much weight as he's used to doing in training on his shoulders right now. Um, he's going to take some time off. Um, and I have a feeling that when he does come back, that we're going to kind of get the Kenny Omega, you know, not retirement tour, but, but he's going to go do some interesting things. And I have a feeling he's going to spend some time in Japan and he's going to come up against the only guy that's ever kicked out of the one winged angel. And that's Kota Ibushi. And I think Mm -hmm. that, that, that he, you know, he and Ibushi have a date with destiny and they know it. And at this particular point with the forbidden door being knocked open, I have a feeling that they're going to, that they're going to get that date. And, and I don't, I, I, I doubt it's going to be in the dome this year, obviously, because abushi has been injured. Omega has been injured, but I wouldn't be yeah. a bit surprised if wrestle kingdom 2023, we get Kota Abushi and Kenny Omega, not necessarily in one of the main events, but certainly, you know, on one of those th- three days. Um, and I wouldn't be a bit surprised if, if shortly after that, Kenny either greatly reduces his schedule or even calls it a day. Um, He's done everything he could possibly do. The only other thing that he could possibly do is if he decided to go, you know, work for Vince. 
Right. Uh, that's it. That's literally, you know, he's done everything else anyone could possibly ever do. He is the belt collector. Um, yeah. I, I, I mean, I mean, if, if, if that's the route he goes, you know, if, if, if the injuries have caught up with him and he needs to do it, I, I, I would not, I, I would not shed one tear for any missed opportunities. You know what I mean? No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing there is, you know, you could take a guy out, you know, Omega could go out and I think, you know, that, that just opens up another opportunity for somebody else. Cause we have so many other guys that can kind of fit into some, those main event spots, which is nice that people can take a break, you know, without being injured and stuff like that. So, which is, yeah. which is really great. It is great. It is. The roster is incredibly deep and they utilize it so well. It is, you know, the, there's, you know, I know some people say that it's bloated or whatever, but it's really not, you know, there's the, nobody's getting lost in the shuffle here. Um, everybody has their place. Speaking of having their place, here's my tinfoil hat theory uh, of the uh, uh, of the day. Um, Kenny takes some time off. He gets kicked out, you know, of the super click. Uh, Matt and Nick are feeling kind of weird about everything, right? You know, the the, uh-huh. the the whole page thing, the Omega thing. They're a little, they're a little, uh, you know, just elusive to to somebody like Adam Cole, who's got his buddy Bobby Fish around now. Well, <clears throat> Kyle O'Reilly comes in and now all of a sudden you got undisputed era back together again. Right. Only they can't call him that. And then, uh, and then on that first show, the TBS era, depending on the way contracts work out, then you bring in Kevin Steen and now you've got Mount Rushmore with the young bucks and Kevin Steen. And you've got a feud right there between those two teams, uh, you know, a six man feud going on. That'll carry you, you know, that'll easily carry your main event scene if you need it to uh you know aside from the title obviously uh right. for for plenty of time um i have a good feeling that something like that could potentially happen so That's it. Yeah. yeah i don't know yeah I don't, when, when is o'reilly's contract up is that uh, i i think it's like the end of this month actually oh wow that's soon. Yeah. okay i yeah. knew i knew steams is pretty soon too. it's sometime in december i think is what i read and then uh sammy zanes i think is sometime early next year okay so getting the band back together there. All right. <laughs> I think there's a good chance. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But anyway, uh, it was awesome. And it's just one of those things where I, I you know, people like what they like. And uh, for me, uh, this is just, this is what I like right now. It's, it's, it's what I love. I love pro wrestling. I never want to be, you know, one of those old men shaking my fist at the clouds, wishing for the good <laughs> old days. Uh, you know, I, I don't have any interest in the other guys right now. And that makes me sad, you know, because that's what I grew up on. And I, and I, and I love WWE, WWF for a very, 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 very long time, but, uh, I just don't have any interest in them right now. And and the last stuff that I had seen, I didn't enjoy. So it's, you know, it's, it's nice to have an alternative, but not only that, it's nice to have an alternative that is just ticking all the boxes for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think the thing, I mean, with, with me, it's like, you know, you know, besides WWE, like the things that I've like really enjoyed out of wrestling in the past, you know, you know, decade or so has been, you know, Chikara, which we talked a lot about, you know, recently. And I really enjoyed Lucha Underground when that was on. Like those sure. are the things I really, really look forward to. And so many of those aspects of those shows and some of the guys from those shows that I really enjoyed are part of this now too. Along with, I think, you know, just kind of, you know, some of the, just uh, you know historical i don't know it's historical figures but you know some of the uh 
legends or I guess luminaries as they're called in uh, <laughs> AEW. I'm trying to think of the right term here. Um, but uh, yeah, some of some of those guys and just kind of bringing in some of the old school like psychology with some of the new school wrestling styles that I I, I find more you know interesting in my taste. Uh, it just it has the right mix of stuff for me. So like I'm very glad that I could you know have something I can watch. You know, every week on TV, easy to get. And then, you know, just those four major things a year. Like, you know, back then, I think sometimes people yeah. say that wrestling was best when it was the big four pay-per-views. Well, yeah. we're back, kind of back to the big four pay-per-views with this company, which is nice. You know, just having that one, these big tent poles and that build up to that. Not to say you can't have some cool things to look forward to in the meantime, but really, like, these are the big focus points throughout the year. And I like having just the like the big four ones and it's not overkill yes i i totally agree and i hope that they keep it that way for for a long time to come and you know obviously we know we're going to be getting those specials those those quarterly specials that they're going to do i think there's only like a one hour special i'm hearing now too oh they're only one hour i didn't know that part okay yeah one one hour maybe one hour and a half it's kind of like the clash of the champions yeah like an hour and a half back in the day i think it's it's gonna be around the same as that nice nice um yeah, I mean, I'm excited for where they're headed. Uh, they're, they seem to be in great shape. I know the network, you know, absolutely loves them. Uh, you, you know, I mean, you've got you've got like the you know the TNT and TBS and the Time Warner like you know Twitter feeds like you know sitting out posts and, and right, congratulating right. Adam Page and you know what I mean. It's like you know Warner Warner Media Group is like is doing stuff for them. It's like anybody who thinks that that this show is 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 you know in any danger whatsoever. I don't think he's paying attention. You know what I mean? I mean, literally Warner is giving them millions of dollars to put them on, you know, their, 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 uh, their airwaves. So uh, it'll, it'll be cool. It'll be really cool to see what the new year brings for them when they move over to TBS uh, and they start doing some other fun, exciting stuff. We know we've got the Owen Hart tournament coming up. We know we've oh, got. Oh yeah. I think um, they're going to start announcing stuff with that pretty soon. They said they didn't want it to kind of overlap with, gear stuff so i think we may be here about this week yeah 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 yeah. and tony said that the tournament's going to be different from you know from what we're used to so that'll be that'll be fun yeah cool right up your alley man (laughs) yeah i'm interested to see what the what that's going to be all about is a new new tournament format i i like it i like it a lot yeah right (laughs) um so with with all that said i i I just want to sum up and i will say you know i I texted chad olson last night as the show was going on, when I saw Baron Von Raschke, because I was just sort of like, are you watching it? Do you plan on watching it? You know, and he wasn't, and, 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 and which is totally fine. And I was just sort of like, okay, cool. Do you mind if I spoil something? He's like, go right ahead. And I was like, Baron Von Raschke is, is, is on the show. And he's like, tell me more. And so I told him about what happened. And he's like, oh God, now I've got to watch it. Um, and, and, and I just kind of thought, I was like, you know, what I would share to anyone who might not have been interested or might not think it's for them is I would, I would encourage you to go out of your way to watch the MJF and Darby Allen match, the Brian Danielson and Miro match, and the Eddie Kingston and CM Punk match. Because I think that those three matches, even for people, the detractors, I, I just can't help but think that those three matches sum up so much of what I love about pro wrestling. Mm-hmm. And as much as I want to recommend the Kenny Omega and Adam Page match, I know Kenny is a divisive figure for yes. a lot of people. And, and I feel like the investment in that two year plus storyline is kind of key to enjoying that, that match. I mean, not enjoying the match, the match is great, but like, I, I do think that there's more that goes into that match. So I'm not going to suggest it because of those reasons, but those other three matches Again, if you watch those and can't derive some enjoyment or understand how good they are at pro wrestling, 
I just, I personally, I don't understand. I'm not telling you you're wrong. I'm not telling you I'm right. I'm not, I just don't get it. I just don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I guess we don't always get everything there. Uh, you know? <laughs> but you know what? But, uh, That's the great uh, thing, right? There's something for everybody out there's there. There's something, something for everybody. Yeah. But I'm kind of along with you there. I'm like, ah, you know, to me, like, it's just, it's just great wrestling. So, yeah. well, and, I, and I'm sure some of the people who, you know, were detractors at first, and I'm sure maybe have, yeah, I don't know if they come around or maybe, you know, they, they still, they get, still get some enjoyment out of it too, even if they maybe don't always, you know, admit to it. So. <laughs> right, right. I, I hope that's the case. I hope, I hope some it. of those people are just, you know, are, are sitting there being like, oh man, this is really good stuff, but I have to tell everybody I hate it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, thanks for letting us uh, riff about it. And, you know, obviously Todd and I really uh, uh, enjoy everything that they've been doing and it's fun to talk about and it's fun to talk about it on the podcast. And it's something that I used to do over at the King of Pro Wrestling podcast. So it's, it's fun to kind of scratch that itch. And we appreciate, we appreciate your valuable minutes and ears. Um, you know, something else that I did at the KOPW podcast back in the days, I oh, went yeah. Starcast, mm-hmm. which uh which is kind of how this whole relationship started. Cause I, I called you up and I was like, Hey, I'm doing this thing. I, I didn't even know you. I just reached out to you and was like, right. Hey, uh, I want to help out. How can I help out? I'm doing this thing. I'm going to Starcast. I would love to represent the game somehow. And uh, and you know, you were great. You sent me some logos, you sent me like some demo sets to take to the take to the you know the Starcast and everything. And you know, we had people demoing the game, we gave away a couple of sets. We you know, it was really cool. It was like, oh, I'm glad that we were able to kind of use this in a way. And our table placement, we had no idea that this was gonna happen. We had the best table placement in the house. Literally you walked in the doors and our table was right there to the right. So everybody had to walk by our table. So it was just great to kind of, you know, to, to be out there once our, you know, we were done with that part of it. Cause the first day we pretty much had to sit there the entire day. Once we were done with that, we got to walk around and, you know, talk to people and, you know, had, had a cool conversation with Kevin Sullivan had a cool conversation with Eric Bischoff, like just, you know, just like meeting people and like, you know, doing some cool shit and everything. Uh, one of the guys that I met and had a really cool conversation with and ended up doing an interview with for that podcast was Mark James, who is the noted Memphis wrestling historian and author. He's written loads of books, uh, compiled, you know, I, I think it's better to say some of those books are obviously, you know, compilations of material and articles and stuff that he has cultivated over the years. Um, but then quite a few of those books are, you know, just, him writing about Memphis wrestling. And we've talked about him before. I know uh, the folks over at Uncharted Territory have talked about him before. I know he recently helped them um, with some stuff about Bill Dundee, for instance, for the upcoming set. And I had reached out to him multiple times over the past three years saying, Hey, we should, you know, we should do another interview. We should do another interview. And, you know, life happened and, you know, we just never got around to it, but I kept buying his books and sending him little messages. And in, you know, in the lead up to the release of this set, uh, I just thought it would be wonderful to do an interview with Mark, talk about Memphis wrestling, talk about some of the guys who are in the set. And uh, I got the opportunity to do that earlier today. Um, We're going to share that interview uh, here with you in just a few moments, but um, yeah, it was, it was, it was really cool to be able to pick his brain um, about Memphis. Um, how familiar are you, Todd, with Mark? Do you, have you, have you read any of his books or? I've not, no, obviously I've really only heard his name through the you know, stuff with you and then with the Uncharted Territories guys. Yeah. I haven't read any of his stuff yet, but for myself. Yeah. I, I mean, there's some stuff that it's one of those things where how deep do you want to go? You know, cause some of right. his stuff, it's like, 
you know, if you want every single match result from Jim Crockett promotions from the sixties through, you know, 1989, you, you, you can, you can get that 88 actually, you know, you, you could actually go out and buy those books and have all of those match results. Um, you know, but if you just want like a couple of books, I, I would recommend to anyone, uh, Tuesday night at the gardens, which he actually co-wrote with Jim Cornette, which is mm-hmm. a lovely book about the history of, of Louisville professional wrestling. It's not just about, you know, Tuesday nights and, and sort of the Memphis wrestling promotion, Jerry Jarrett run promotion. They go back to like, you know, the turn of the, of the 20th century and, and just chart the course of wrestling in Louisville. And, you know, Louisville was an important nexus for professional wrestling. You had guys like Ed Strangler Lewis and uh, Lou Thez and, you know, and, and, and Buddy Rogers even, and everybody, you know, kind of coming through that town. And, and, and it was a big deal. Louisville was a big deal. Uh, and of course, then when Jarrett was promoting it, you know, they did a lot of really hot stuff in Louisville that wasn't necessarily stuff that they were doing all the time on Monday nights in Memphis. Um, but, uh, love that book. And then his Memphis yearbooks, uh, he's got 77, 78 and 82. Um, those three books are, are just fantastic as well. I, I think that they're so good. Um, and he's co-wrote some books with, uh, Bill Dundee, Dutch Mantel and Jerry Jarrett. So you know, he's wow. really just charted the course of kind of, you know, the history of Memphis wrestling and he continues to do so. He's got more books coming out. He kind of teases those a little bit in the interview. Um, but I highly, you know, those, those are some of the books that I would just recommend off the top of my head. Uh, uh, you should definitely check out his website, memphiswrestlinghistory.com. Um, everything's there, you know, all his books, the t-shirts, the posters, all sorts of cool stuff. Um, and ultimately he's also just a really cool, very gracious, you know, articulate guy. So he's a fun guy to interview and very passionate, obviously, how could you not oh, yeah. be when you're you know doing all this? Um, so it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Um, before we get to the interview, I do want to say two things. One, just because we talk about somebody in this interview does not mean that they are in the set. So I don't want to create any false hopes or assumptions. Uh, we really just kind of had a freewheeling conversation about Memphis wrestling history. And that means that we talked about a lot of names, um, some names that are already in the game, like Jackie Fargo. Obviously, if we're going to talk about Memphis wrestling, how can we not talk about Jackie Fargo? But, you know, we talked about names that aren't in the game yet and may not be in the game and may never be, you know, in the game, although never say never. But uh, I just don't want to create, you know, any, any, assumptions based off of who and what we talk about over the course of this interview um, when it comes to some of the names that are mentioned. Very good disclaimer there. Yes, <laughs> I, I know you're getting lots of hopes up there. Right. Going along, so yes. Um, and the second thing that I will say is that there was a funny moment that happened, uh, in the course of the interview where we were talking about Austin Idol, obviously, because, uh, you know, I wanted to actually do a rundown of the names that are in the set. And when we talked about Austin, um, Mark was mentioning his plane crash and he mentioned the names of the people in the plane crash. Uh, he just had a, a fluff because clearly the guy knows his stuff. So I would not question him one bit where he mistakenly said Johnny Valentine instead of Bobby Shane. Johnny Valentine obviously was in the Ric Flair plane crash. Bobby Shane, of course, was in, you know, this plane crash. He died in the plane crash with Gary Hart and um, Buddy Colt and and Austin Idol. And um, I did not stop to correct him, mainly because there's a part of me that's just sort of like, you know, I'm not going to just stop Mark James and correct him over this one little thing. It would feel kind of pedantic. So I'm going to just, I'm going to let this go and I'll, I'll either fix it in post or I'll put a little disclaimer on it. So that's what I'm doing. Again, 
don't doubt Mark. He knows his shit. Just a little, you know, it's just one of those little things that happens sometimes. And uh, and when you have two iconic plane crashes in the history of professional wrestling, you you, you know, if you mix up a participant, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so anyway, I wanted to just throw that out there before we got all the mail saying like it was Bobby Shane, not Johnny Valentine. Uh, not that any of our fine promoters sound like that. But um, so yeah, so that that's uh, that that all said. Uh, I think we should roll some tape. What do you say? I think that sounds like a good idea. Let's do it. Here you go, ladies and gentlemen. This is our interview with Mark James. All right, promoters, welcome Mark James to the show, uh, Memphis historian, uh, author, and uh, I, I want to say friend. We've, we've, we've talked a bit here and there, but I don't know if we're quite at that level just yet. Um, but Mark, how are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. My, my pleasure. I, you know, we've wanted to talk for a while now, and I know that uh, we'd hope to set something up with the old King of Pro Wrestling podcast, but obviously things just kind of fell by the wayside. But I did have the chance to interview you at uh, StarCast for the uh, for All In a few years back, yeah. um, which was yeah. a lot of fun. It you know Honestly, it ended up being probably my favorite interview that I got to do there i just felt like it was a really great conversation um and uh it was it was it was a lot of fun and it turned me on to your books which i hadn't i I didn't have any yet i knew of them i was aware of them uh and now i think i have nearly all of them so (laughs) um and i just picked up the top 100 nights uh monday nights in in memphis history uh which is awesome i've really really enjoyed it um I think one of the one of my favorite parts about it is that you, you know you put these great sort of you know capsulized histories uh, of the card um, on the opposite page, and then you actually designed these you know old style wrestling posters for each Monday Night card that you list in there, and I thought that was really cool. Yeah, uh, it, it it started by T-shirts. Uh, Memphis stopped doing the posters in 1971 before all the glory days, the 70s and the 80s in Memphis. And uh, it started with Jerry Lawler going through different towns, whatever he'd see all these rock and roll T-shirts with the uh, or, or posters of uh, like concert cards that they used to do. And he says, you know, I'd love to have some Memphis wrestling posters on T-shirts to walk around in just to you know promote Memphis stuff. I said, but they didn't do it. He says, well, can you make them? I said, yeah. So it kind of started with that, and then I made them a bunch of T-shirts with all the designs on them. And I said, hey, would you mind if I sold these posters or maybe did a book? It was first just do a book of the posters. He said, oh, that'd be wonderful. Go for it. So I did that, and uh, it just kind of steamrolled from there. And I've been, you know, the the book was so much fun. Um, Jerry did agree with my top ten, so. (laughs) Nice. Because I count them down, you know, the book, it starts at 100 and goes to number one. Right. Uh, Jerry did agree with my top ten, or actually the the whole book, he said, oh, that's great. And uh, it just kind of steamrolled, and I've been doing the the posters themselves and releasing them for about the past five years or so. So it's kind of even gone, you know, from T-shirt to poster to book to releasing the posters, selling them. So it's, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. I actually I bought one of the uh, the t shirts, which I don't know if if this would have been based on an actual poster because this was in the fifties, but it was the Sputnik Monroe uh, Billy Wicks t shirt, um, which is which is one of my favorite t shirts actually. Uh, and and after reading the book, um, well, almost reading the book, I haven't finished it yet, but. Um, it's definitely made me want to maybe pick up a couple of the posters or a couple of other t-shirts because I know that those are for sale at the, on the website, right? Yeah, yeah, just uh, MemphisWrestlingHistory.com. 
if that's too long to remember, just go to markjamesbooks.com and I get you inside the website and you can use the menus to find the pages. Yeah, excellent. Um, now, the the uh, the latest book that you released, I believe, was the Jerry Lawler record book. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the last one. Yeah, which is also just an excellent book. And I know that Lawler has talked about it uh, on his podcast, and I think in other forms before, um, just about how for him, it, you know, it was pretty incredible the depth of research and the fact that you know you really had basically tracked down the entirety of of his career from the early days all the way up until. Um, I believe it, it ends in what, what year is the last year of that book? Uh, I believe it's 96. I think it's that's, 70 through 96. If yeah. I'm not mistaken. That sounds, that sounds right. I couldn't remember how far into the nineties it went, but, um, and it's, uh, yeah, 1996. Um, and it's a great book. And you know, another thing that I, again, that I love uh, about that book is it's not just simply records of this match happened in this time and place, and these were the victors, but you actually do add some notes and some texture into quite a few of the matches about what was going on, you know, what might have, you know, been the prelude to the match if there was an ongoing feud and that sort of stuff in quite a few places, which is great for a guy like me, who especially a lot of that 70s stuff, I don't really know a whole lot about it. Yeah. Uh, that early 70s stuff in particular, um, it really helped to inform me and, and understand kind of the whys and what fours, which was great. Yeah, it, uh, Jerry is such, I don't know, it's almost like a dichotomy. I mean, there's the Memphis fans and then there's the WWE fans slash WWF fans. And they're, you know, he's two different people to those, those different fans. And it's like, I wanted it to be enough information where you got the flavor of what was going on not just the results uh that's why there's uh the book has like over 200 photos in it as well to help that you get you know you know if it's Lawler versus the mongolian stomper in 1975 or something boom there's a photo of them fighting each other in 1975 yeah uh you know i've tried to make all the photos were time accurate so if you see one from 1981 boom it's 1981 and a lot of those are actually really that match so that was even uh, because of Jim Cornette and the myth, the older myth of stuff, I was able to do that um, with the photos. But it, it, you know, it's just as a big a guy as he was in Memphis. And then, you know, uh, he's, heck, what is he? Goodness, he's in a, next week he turns 72. Wow. And he still wrestles. Yeah. Almost every weekend. So it's <laughs> like, it's, you know, he, he still has new fans. Yeah. And uh, I just wanted to be able to tell as much of a story as I could and just to, you know, show the depth of it, show, you know, the fact he fought the original Sheik, he fought the original Iron Sheik, he fought, you know, Bobo Brazil, he fought Hulk Hogan, he fought all these guys, you know, Bret Hart's, everybody remembers the Bret Hart's in the 90s with the WWF and all these things. I just wanted it all to be in one place so they could see the, the depth of it all. Yeah, I, I think that that's one of the fascinating things about Memphis as well, the names that came through the territory and the fact that, you know, you had top champions, um, you know, from AWA, NWA and, and, you know, people who would obviously go on to be future champions in, in other organizations or WWE or, or, or uh, otherwise. And I, I think obviously Lawler being the face of Memphis for such a long time, he crossed paths with most of those people. Um, yeah. 
And, and, and it, yeah, I, I mean, it's one of the things too, you, you mentioned the photos I want to go back to real quick. That's another thing that I love about the top 100 Monday nights is that, uh, you did the same thing. You, you talk about in the introduction to the book that you endeavored to find, you know, period accurate photos for each, uh, poster that you did. So it wasn't just yes. like, here's just a photo of Jerry Lawler. It had to be Jerry Lawler from that specific time. You know, even if it wasn't necessarily that specific week, it would have been, you know, as accurate as you could possibly make it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it, I mean, it matters. You don't want to show a picture, you know, the card, let's say, is 1974, and then you show a picture from 1982. I mean, that's not who, that wasn't the Lawler <laughs> we saw. Right. And I want you to be able to look at that and say, okay, that's what it looked like back then, or look like here, or okay. Uh, it, it's just, it, it, you know, I, I think that's part of the responsibility to getting the story right, is you should, you know, whether it's the story, the results, the matches, who was fighting there, the photos, you know, or, you know, the time relevancy really matters. It, it helps you get that. And I believe I put it in that book. It, I, you know, I want it to give you a, a picture, a 360 degree picture of what was going on then in your brain. And I think that pictures are very key to that. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, and I think that it, it works, you know, like you said, because having, you know, tried to mine as much footage as I possibly can uh, of the Memphis days and, and you know, seeing the, the change in appearance that so many of the guys went through, whether it was Lawler uh-huh. or Dundee, um, you, you know, you really do kind of have to nail down that specific era uh for for each guy you know was lawler sporting shaggier hair was did he have kind of the bowl cut did he you know what i mean what what was his entrance gear like he he, didn't have the strap back before you know around 77 76 77 he would enter sometimes have a strap sometimes he didn't and so it you know he just always it's those little nuances that that's that's what the story is yes Right. Well, and the, I mean, the storytelling is so incredibly important. You know, one of the things that I think is wonderful about Memphis, and especially some of the footage that I've seen, is that there was um, a great, I think, respect for the history of the territory and the fans' knowledge of the history of the territory. And one of the guys that typified that, you know, from the early days of his career all the way in through to like the introduction of the Fabulous Ones, for instance, it has to be Jackie Fargo. Can you tell us a little bit about how important Jackie Fargo was to Memphis? Sure. Uh, I'll give you a little history on Fargo. He had been in Tennessee wrestling a tiny bit in the 50s. Around 53, I think, is his first time in Memphis. He wasn't here long and took off. And then him and uh, Don Fargo, as well as his brother Roughhouse, ended up going to New York. And they were fighting, this is pre-WWF era, uh, they were fighting the world champions in Madison Square Garden. One time they had the biggest sellout in history of Madison Square Garden, the old Madison Square Garden. <laughs> and uh, this is pre-Bruno. This is, uh, you know, the, this is a long time ago. Yeah. And they were the biggest tag team. Uh, they were heels. They were bad guys. And they were the biggest thing in the world. They were on fire. Uh, Jackie continued after that. He continued to wrestle around the country some, but he ended up coming back south and started working for Nick Gillis in Nashville. And this is probably around 1958, no, 59, let's say. I believe 59 or 60. And uh, he continued to wrestle here for the rest of his career, more or less, uh, in the Tennessee area. Eventually, he did come to Memphis a lot more. And by the late, oh, I guess late 60s, he was stepping down a little bit, slowing down a little bit, and was sticking with uh, Jerry Jarrett on the Memphis end of the territory. Memphis had two ends of the territory. One was the Nashville end, and the other was Memphis. And so 
and Jerry Jarrett was the Booker of Memphis. And he would stick over here with Jarrett. Jarrett knew he could really, he knew Fargo's talent and how important he was to the fans that you were talking about. Uh, he was, you know, originally you've got the guys like Sputnik and Billy Wicks in the 50s. I look at 1960s as Jackie Fargo's time here and the mm. popularity. He was the guy. He was the dude. He was the top guy. Yeah. And that by the 70s, he was really wanting to quit and retire some, and he was slowing down some and not wrestling as much. And uh, that's about the time that Jerry Lawler came into the picture. And they call it passing the torch when the younger guy takes over and the older guy steps back. Uh, it was right around, I guess I want to say 70. Oh, well, the big feud was 74. Uh, 72 is when the Lawler first came to the area and started getting a lot of reaction as a bad guy. So 74 comes, they have their big feud. Lawler comes out on top, wins the title. He's now the king and starting his run. Uh, Jackie stepped back a little bit, started slowing down, which I said, and started wrestling fewer matches. By around 1979... Fargo started coming back a little bit, and when Lawler needed help in a big tag team match and he needed a partner, he would call back Fargo, and they would pop the ticket sales. I mean, fans <laughs> went crazy for Fargo. They loved Fargo. He was one of their guys, uh, and just he had always been there, and he had used to be the man, and now he's looked at as a mentor to Lawler and all this, and it just worked. And then, like you mentioned, in the Fabs, that was the last big run he came back for, sort of. And now... You know, it, the, the reason the Fabs popped so much was because of the rub they got from Fargo. Yeah. They started it as a feud between Hart. Hart had a team called the New York Dolls, which was a ripoff of uh, Jackie Fargo and Don Fargo back. Uh, and that New York feud, that's what called the New York Dolls. And he took offense to it and did a real famous interview calling Hart a snake and all this. And he says, I'm bringing two boys with me. Yeah. Not boys, but men. You got boys, I got men. We're going to handle you. And they brought the Fabs back. The Fabs were out of the blue, and it just took off because of the rub from Fargo. Uh, the Fabs did go other places. Bill Watts, AWA, up north, Reverne, <clears throat> excuse me. And they never caught on as well as they did here. And the pure fact of the matter is it was the rub from Fargo. Fargo was so popular, they bought it that, hey, these are Fargo's guys. They're, they're as good as Fargo. Yeah. And it mattered. And that's, I've always said, um, you know, well, who's the best tag team in Memphis? I said, well, you got two, two you got to look at two. I said, the best one from Memphis for Memphis at State, Memphis was the Fabs. The best one that started here, the one somewhere else was probably the Rock and Roll Express. Mm -hmm. And uh, just because the Rock and Roll didn't stay, they didn't stay on top here long. They, you know, they had gone on to Mid-South and then Crockett and all that. And it, it's, you know, it, it's just they. It was that rub from Fargo. They were gold. Yeah, you you know you mentioned that interview, and I actually just had recently uh, watched that, and and I I mean Fargo is is definitely gold in it, and 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 really just you know I love the way that he he's able to plant the seeds and and kind of raise expectations. He's he's bringing some people in, and it's like who are these guys going to be? Um, mm -hmm. and, and the anger that he could put the and you felt his anger. Yeah. And it was real to him. And it was, you know, just, oh, a lot like an Ole Anderson, you know, just, uh, right. you know, he, he, oh, he, he had it. Those old guys had it. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, it's fascinating because seeing him, you know, at that point, uh, I mean, he, he, you know, would 
be around or, or jump in the ring maybe a couple of times and he's in his 50s and just seeing him kind of like you know hop into the ring and, and slug somebody and the reaction of the crowds is is incredible yeah bring a board in the ring bring the ring bell throw the ring bell and throw <laughs> chairs just go crazy and just beat and that's what he and that's what the fans loved that's what they expected was him to go crazy on somebody and do it and he did yeah you know, it was you know, speaking of that, like he, he definitely, I think, helped to kind of popularize what people sort of think of, whether right or not, people think of as the Memphis style with all of the brawling. Like he really kind of popularized that during the 60s and 70s, didn't he? Yeah. And, and the reason it worked was Memphis, uh, you got different type territories. You got like in Atlanta. Well, and maybe Jim Crockett promotions. Let's let's say then Jim Crockett promotions out in the Carolinas. You've got. Much Nick in St. Louis, and you've got a Memphis, three different territories, Mid-Atlantic, Memphis, and St. Louis. St. Louis would program different, or have different programs, you know, this guy fighting this guy, then it really wouldn't have, per se, a feud going. It would just start, you know, kind of like a boxing card, this guy's fighting this card, this guy, this guy, mm. and, and it wasn't, you know, there wasn't a lot of depth to it, other than he's challenging for the belt, or this or that. And, you know, in uh, Crockett, you had more, you know, established feuds and that was normal Memphis the feuds were more done on personal reasons so and so did this guy wrong so they put that personal aspect in there and uh, and you know so and so did this to so and so oh man that that, that guy's a rat you know I wouldn't (laughs) put up for that people could relate in their personal lives on some of these things and that kind of, you know, watching the interviews and every Saturday morning, they, oh man, oh man, it would wind them up and they'd go buy their tickets. So the personal side sold. And, you know, if you get mad at someone, you're, you're no telling what type of fight's going to happen with someone. Right. right. And, and it just translated perfectly to that style match. Right. In the matches, you know, um, for better or worse, you know, but it, it just, it worked. Yeah. It tied into the people's psyche. Well, it, you know, it's 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 incredible, too, when you think about the fact that, you know, especially somebody like Lawler, who being on top faced a lot of the guys, you know, champions coming in, whether it was, you know, uh, Nick Bockwinkle or, you know, former champs, even like Dory and Terry Funk and that sort of stuff. And obviously yeah, the Funks, the Briscoes. Yeah. Dude. Uh, race, Bockwinkle, Flair a couple times. Um all those guys and I and I'm, I'm always intrigued by the matches that he had with them because I feel like it's it's almost like this hybrid where you know you've got you've got that sort of brawling you know Memphis style but at the same time there's there's a little bit of a higher work rate than you might normally see you know you've got like the guys going in there and doing a little bit more mat wrestling and it's and it's one of those things when people I, I, I you know sometimes don't give Lawler enough credit I think because he was in there mixing it up with these guys who are among the greatest ever and I and you you know, and and I holding his own and having great matches with them. Um, so, uh, you know, to take it back a little bit further, real quick, uh, since we're you know going through the history of the territory, but you know, you mentioned the personal uh, uh, feud and the personal stakes, and uh, because of the Memphis Heat documentary, which if anyone's listening to this and they haven't seen it, I can't recommend it enough. Um, I became very interested in Sputnik Monroe and Billy Wicks, and I had sure. heard, you know I'd heard of Sputnik before, uh, but I wasn't really aware of Billy Wicks. Um, and one of the things that fascinated me. Uh, over the course of the documentary was the talk about how they used the television to set up the matches. And in the 50s, 
like that was, you know, I, I'm not saying it was in t- completely foreign, but the personal stakes like you're talking about, that wasn't used quite as much or, or certainly not as effectively, I think, as they used it in Memphis. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, they would. Billy was the ultimate baby face and Sputnik was the ultimate heel. Um, <laughs> best good guy, the best bad guy. And. That's what they pushed. I mean, Billy was a blonde-haired, good-looking guy, well-built. Sputnik, my golly, he was crazy. He uh, <laughs> he was a ruffian, as they say. He he liked to drink. He liked to have fun. And uh, the, the reason it really, really worked with those guys is uh, Sputnik was just obstinate. Uh, <laughs> in Memphis, you still had race problems, tons of race problems. Uh, you're talking 1959 when the big feud happened. So that's, you know, that's, what is it? Uh, you got nine years, you know, before Martin Luther King is assassinated in Memphis in 68, April 68. Mm-hmm. And you still had segregation. The The matches were happening at Ellis Auditorium downtown Memphis. And whites and blacks could not sit together. Yeah, They had an upper ring at the very top of the Ellis Auditorium uh, where... Mm-hmm. Uh, the blacks were relegated to you. That, that was the only place they could sit. If they sold out, they sold out. Yeah. Well, Sputnik went and he, he, let me put this: whites and blacks could not even eat together in a restaurant. That's how segregated it was. Um, Sputnik would go to black diners and go have lunch and get arrested. <laughs> he endured himself to the entire population of those guys here. And it was, he treated them as equals. He says, look, I love you guys. Yeah. And he actually, it it riled up people wanting to go to the matches. On the flip side, you had guys who didn't like black people and didn't want them there. Yeah. And they wanted him beat down. And on the other side, you've got, you know, these people who love Sputnik there's an old joke. I forget. Uh, it's in West Tennessee. If you go into a black person's house, you're going to have three photos on the wall. Uh, Martin Luther King, Jesus and Sputnik Monroe. <laughs> and it was, they just loved him. They loved him because he was doing, I mean, he'd get out of jail and go right back down to Bill street and walk into a black diner and sit down and have a cup of coffee. Yeah. He didn't care. And that's the thing. So many wrestlers are not, and never were racist. They just, uh, they love one thing, the color green. <laughs> and the, the, they talk about Sputnik going in and, you know, telling the promotion, look, I want more people that like me to be able to come in there. I want more black people to come in. And that helped integrate more. Uh, they allowed more in, and which they should have. They weren't just relegated to just like the upper couple rows. Uh, they just wanted more people in the building. Yeah. And, you know, and it worked. It worked. I know it's a little off topic there, but it's just, it's getting to the guts of that feud between Sputnik and Wicks. Uh, Wicks was just a great guy. Uh, passed away a couple of years ago. He was just a sweetheart of a guy. I've talked to him probably, I don't know, a dozen, two dozen times over the phone before he passed the past 15 years. Mm. Such a sweetheart of a guy. Uh, just, man. Very talented, very talented. Uh, he could go up against the guys like Danny Hodge. Now, he right. probably wasn't going to win, but he could literally go 
pretty good for a few minutes hold to hold with Danny Hodge. And uh, when he retired uh, in the late 60s, mid-60s, late 60s, he uh, he actually went to work. Uh, Memphis is in Shelby County. He went to work for the Shelby County Sheriff's, <laughs> and he was actually the guy who taught hand-to-hand combat to the sheriff deputies in training. It's amazing. Because he was he was a legit shooter. Right. And even though what people say, Sputnik was not. Right, right, right. <laughs> no, like, oh, yeah, he, he was a shirt. No, no, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. <laughs> yeah, they, they were kind to him in Memphis Heat, but no, Sputnik was not a shooter. <laughs> right. I get the I get the impression that that's what he would want you to believe. But, but oh, it's yeah, not. <laughs> that, was his, that was his stick. Look, I'm a shooter. Rawr, 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 right, know, right, rough, right. Rough. And it, but that's the thing about wrestling. You know, it's it's for show. Right. You know, you make it, it, if it's your angle, you push it to the 10th degree. I'm the roughest, toughest shooter out there. I'm the roughest, toughest fighter. I'm this, I'm that. Yeah. That's what you're doing. It, it's all for show. And it's to make people believe. It's yeah. psychology. You know, it, it's the thing. I'll give you a great example. Bill Dundee and Coco Ware in Memphis. Hmm. Both those guys are not the tallest guys in the world. <laughs> right. Uh the truth of the matter is I think Coco is about an inch shorter than Bill Dundee. Okay. But because of Jerry Lawler in the 1970s calling Dundee that sawed-off run, <laughs> that midget, that this, that, that's that's 40, goodness, 46 years later, that's still in people's minds. Yeah. Oh, that, that run, Dundee, he's the shortest guy in wrestling. No, he's not. You know, you never hear Coco called the short guy or this or that. <laughs> but... You know, what you keep saying on TV, it, it permeates the ears, goes into the brain. People remember it. And that's, you know, you say it every week, every week, every speech you give, every interview you give, that rut Dundee, that midget, that no good, you know. And it, it, it so back to the other stuff that it, it just, it gets in there and it gets in people's psyche and they remember it because it feels personal more than just a, you know, a standard other city feud right yeah well i mean that's one of the things i think that's kind of the hallmark of memphis television um and you know in the shows obviously that they sent out to the the area markets which i do want to ask you about here in a second but like the um the the amazing thing is is that you get a lot of talking but it's it's very different from i think what a lot of people expect you know obviously like jim crockett promotions had you know some incredible talkers in the 80s and they produced just some solid gold stuff whether it was dusty or you know flair or whatnot but but when you look at memphis you know especially knowing that it's the same guys year in and year out like they didn't have the same turnover that a lot of other territories did not that there wasn't turnover obviously but certainly Uh the guys up at the top you know you had so many of those guys sticking around like i mean think about like Jimmy Hart's time there, or Lawler's time there, or Dundee's time there, and they were able to still go out there and talk people into the building week in and week out. And and there is, like I said, there's a bit of a different tenor to those those segments. Um, and I would even, you know, I even argue the same thing with the matches. It's interesting to me because there were always good matches on the TV as well. It wasn't always just squash, squash, squash. Which you watch some of those old Mid Atlantic, you know, you know, shows, and that's really all it is. Sometimes even the main event is basically just a glorified squash. Whereas yeah, on the Memphis yeah. TV, like you often, you often got like one, sometimes maybe even two, like really good matches along with all the the talking. Um, 
so my question is about the TV is, you know, how important, especially knowing that every Monday night they've got a show, how important were those Saturday morning shows? And I also, the second part of that, that I want to know is like knowing that they had to edit and send those shows off to other markets because they, they wanted to promote different matches in different territory in different, uh, cities. Um, how much planning went into what was going to happen like week in and week out? Uh, first part, remind me of the second part. Cause I'll forget my sure. brain goes away. No worries. Um, the first part about how important the TV was, Oh my gosh, it was just, it was one of the keys. You've got several keys going in there. One, you, your key is you got Jerry Jerk promoting second key is you got Lance and Dave on the microphone going through everything, they give it legitimacy. Uh, another thing, you got Jerry Lawler on there, week in, week out. Uh, uh, 70s and early 80s, you had Bill Dundee pretty much being the the, uh, the the sergeant at arms type thing. He would go to every city every night with the, you know, the boys and handle the, the interaction with like the arena people. He'd know how many tickets were sold. He'd know what the money they got. He knew everything. And then he would give that information back to Jerry Jarrett in Hendersonville. Um, so you've got a lot of things layered on top of one another. Uh, oh, and also uh, the fact Memphis had no major base, uh, no major uh, professional sports teams. That played into it. Uh, but with that said, that TV show, uh, I talked earlier about the poster book. Memphis stopped doing posters in 71 because they didn't need them to get the word out. That's what that TV show was doing already. Back in 71, it had great ratings. Yeah. Pre-Lawler. And if your show's getting that much, you know, you don't have to put out any extra information. They know to turn that TV on and find it. If there's a morning football game on, they'll find it. They'll know it'll be on after the game at 3 o'clock Saturday afternoon. They'll find that show. And that's what was happening. That TV show became the lifeblood of the territory in Memphis, West Tennessee, uh, because it told everything. And that's what people went to it to find out who's coming, who's fighting who, what about this, what about that, what happened last week. And it was just vital. It was, it literally was the lifeblood of the territory. And it was live. It was always live throughout the 60s, throughout the 70s, throughout the 80s, up until it went off the air in the 90s. The show was always done live uh, around 90, I don't remember the exact date, but around 90 something, 92, maybe the show was cut down to an hour, but an hour and a half, 11 AM every Saturday morning through the sixties and the seventies up to 77, it was on channel 13 in Memphis and it switched to channel five and stayed on there till it went off. And I don't know, I guess it was the late nineties, but it had still had heat like 27 shares and, you know, two thirds of the people in the city of Memphis were watching it, which is, you know, <laughs> three, four hundred thousand people out of, you know, five hundred, six hundred thousand people were watching every Saturday morning. That's if you think, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. But that's how important it was to the people. They bought in. They wanted to see. Uh, I've always described wrestling as a male soap opera. Yeah. And Memphis did it better than anybody for that. Yes. Um, it was crazy. It was crazy. All right. Uh, second part of the question. What was it again? Yeah. So when, when, you know, 
sending the tapes out to the other markets and the other cities to promote, um, I had read and, and have found in, in watching the old footage that those were cut down. So Evansville and Louisville or whatever would get 60 minutes instead of 90 minutes, for instance. Yep, um, yep, yep they would. Uh, what was going on there is what would happen, <clears throat> Memphis happened on Monday, Louisville was usually Tuesday, one one week a month that happened on Sunday because I don't know what they had a, what they had there, but... Uh, um, Evansville was on Wednesday, I guess. Thursday, once, twice a month, they had it in Lexington, Kentucky. Friday night was always Tupelo, Mississippi, because they would come back to Memphis after the show and do for Saturday morning TV. Saturday night, I believe they were doing Nashville a lot except one Saturday a month because they had the flea market at the fairgrounds. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I, in the 82 book I did, the yearbook on 82 in Memphis, yeah. I was able to document like 384 cards in a year, matches. Wow. And I'm sorry, cards. So, Because some cities, when they got the fabs, they were able to start successfully doing two cards a night in certain things. They'd send Lawler to one town and then send the fabs to another town on the main events. Wow. So on the nights like Thursday when it was smaller cards in like Lexington and they might send someone to who knows where, another smaller city that was, you know, uh, only – there was a lot of uh, cities that they only came to like once a month. Some were on the schedule of every once a week, the big cities. Then you had ones that were once a month. Then you had someone that were like quarterly and then once every six months and then once a year. And so they would fit them in. <clears throat> but the uh, the bicycle tapes is what they're called. Okay. Saturday morning, they would have wrestling. Live TV show, an hour and a half. Minus commercials, you know, about an hour, 10 minutes maybe. So by 1982, 83-ish, Lawler had stopped going to all the towns. He wouldn't always go to Louisville. He wouldn't always go to Evansville. Mm. So if he wasn't, they would cut him out of the show that played that in the city. Wow. So, so you know, if, if it's an hour and a half, Lawler come out and do his segment or two, he'd do his interview, then do his match, whatever. Well, they'd cut that interview out, and they'd cut that that match out on TV. And then whoever he was fighting, if it was with Hart's group, they'd cut Hart out, and he'd cut Hart's interview out about the match and whoever he was fighting out. <laughs> and then they would go, and that was Saturday. So Monday night at, in Memphis at the uh, – Mid South Coliseum. What they would do behind the scenes as the matches were going on is they would do new behind the stage interviews, and it would be for Louisville or Lexington or Evansville. And these new interviews would fill enough up to give them an hour on the TV tape. So they would do that on Monday night. Then they'd go to Louisville. Well, the match that happened on the card on Monday night would not happen Tuesday, that Tuesday, the next night in Louisville. <laughs> what would happen is the card that matched that Memphis Monday night would be next Tuesday. Wow. The Saturday, they called them bicycle tapes. They would take a videotape, you know, put the this past Saturday morning on there, minus all the stuff that it wasn't going to happen there, put the new interviews from Monday night behind the scenes in there and then when they went that third tuesday night to louisville they would drop it off to somebody there who would give it to the tv station 
to play Saturday morning. And that happened in Evansville, Louisville, all the other cities that week. Wow. And they, they called him, like they would bicycle him to the cities as they went to the territory, throughout the territory. Yeah. So that's what you had. So if Lawler fought, you know, somebody on Monday night, let's say Iron Sheik on Monday night. Yeah. All right. Well, he, he, in Tuesday night, he wouldn't fight Iron Sheik there. It might have been, it was probably whoever he fought the week before. It could have been a match with Bobby Eaton, let's say. Well, he'd fight Bobby Eaton there. Next, the next Tuesday, he would fight Darren Sheik in Louisville. It's it's amazing to me because it, it it's you know in in a way like Memphis was this microcosm of of just territorial wrestling as a whole. You know the idea that basically different cities were getting different tapes, much in the same way that different territories had different programs. You know different cities are getting different matches, and yeah, there's some there's some continuity obviously because it's still the same group of wrestlers, and there are still like you know feuds that are probably carrying over city to city. But it, it's just really interesting to me that they were able to promote each city in a different way that it wasn't independently yeah in memphis when we were kids in the 70s we didn't realize memphis wrestling was happening in louisville <laughs> or evansville we had no idea uh, you know when until the 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 80s when things started you know you'd hear things oh wow or you'd see something in a wrestling news magazine or something like that it's like oh wow and then you re- realized all this but back then you didn't it was just the world was much bigger then and it was you know such you know, there was no internet. There wasn't a lot of that. You didn't realize a lot of things were happening in other places. So, right. I mean, it, it, it was, you know, uh, it, it, it was very well done. It was economic. That way you're not having to put a show on in each city. Also having mm-hmm. to get all your guys there, mm-hmm. putting on a show, then producing it and going live. I mean, you think about that because, it, you know, that, that would have been astronomical to do all that. Move a ring there, get it, and then do it every week. Set up a ring on TV three times a week, some in different cities. Yeah. So it was, it worked, you know, they, they invented a wheel to do that and it really worked for the entire time they did it. So, you know, speaking about footage basically, and, and, and that one of the things that I feel like is officially, I mean, obviously it's, there's stuff out there on YouTube and other channels and stuff that you can kind of find it, but officially there's no real release of, you know, like a comprehensive release of Memphis footage. Um, and uh, I'm curious, do you know the, the story behind, you know, who exactly owns it, what the deal is with any potential releasing is, you know, what the conflict is, is there, you know, is there a story there? (laughs) Uh, I don't think it really, anybody owns it. Um, there's guys that talk about it and they know more about it than I do. And it's, it's, the, the way the digital stuff or the, the TV stuff is, there, there's just this, it, it's, it's pretty deep. It, it it's, goes with the, the way the law works and the rights on digital or not digital, but on video, whatever you want to call it, the shows themselves. And there's a time limit on stuff. And it's so the, the mind, my understanding of the interpretation is it doesn't really belong to anybody. Okay. Uh, that doesn't mean, you know, you put something out on it. It doesn't mean Jerry Lawler won't turn around and sue. You can sue anybody for anything. It don't mean you win. <laughs> but, you know, so, and, and the thing is, there's just not anything of the old stuff. 
I talked about the bicycle tapes. They would reuse them. They'd pick up the old tapes and take them back and tape over it because tapes were like $20, $30 back then. This is pre-VCR days. Yeah. So they would just tape over them instead of buying new tapes. So it was all erased. Because in the 1970s, early 80s, there was no, you know, well, maybe not in the early 80s, but because VCRs were around back then. Right. I think we got our first VCR around 80, 81. But in the 70s, there was no VCR. There was just, and like I said, they weren't going to pay $30 a tape every week for all the, you know, the three or four ones they were doing out. Uh, so they just reused them, erased them, and taped over. And is that true of the Memphis Studio Show as well? Like the the ninety minute oh, that's, episodes? No, that's it. Yeah, that that's the deal. The Memphis Studio Show was that's what they did. They that was the bicycle tape. Basically, was the Memphis Studio Show that was being cut down. They would send it out, and then when they dropped that off, the other guy would have the last weeks and give it back to him, and they would take it back and copy over it. Wow. So yeah, that that that's it's pretty much gone. All that if, if they had anything masters, there was a fire at. One of the, I guess it was Channel 13, maybe. I can't remember if it was 13 or 5. There was a, they had a fire in their studio once, and it, if there was anything, it was drenched in water and some burned. And yeah. So, I, you know, so I, I, I don't hold out hope for <laughs> any of that. So basically, it's a case of we should be grateful for what there is available and, and, and not really necessarily well, be holding yeah, out that, it, you know. It's, what's out there now is probably all you're going to ever see. Okay. Is my thinking on it. Uh, unless uh, it's been, 40 plus years since those days. And if there was anything, I would think it would have come out by now. Right. Right. Well, and like you say, I mean, with, with VCRs, I mean, there is a pretty, like from about 83 on, you know, you can pretty much find, you know, it, oh, might, yeah. it might not be the 90 minute Memphis shows, but you might, you know, have the Evansville or the Louisville show that week or whatnot. But, um, so, so, I mean, at least there is, like you say, stuff out there and there's obviously footage from stuff, you know, in the seventies, which brings me to the next question about footage. Uh, one of the things that I think is really interesting because I know that it wasn't always true of other promotions is it seems like Memphis was often running tape on the arena shows. Even if they weren't recording the entire show, there's a lot of footage of like main event stuff from, you know, from, from around the territory. Uh, I mean, obviously we've got the footage of the famous, you know, Tupelo concession brawl, for instance, there's plenty of, you know, mid South Coliseum footage, um, you know, all the Andy Kaufman stuff and, you know, and, and, and the matches I mentioned earlier with like Lawler and Bachwinkle that are out there and stuff like that. Um, was that I mean was was that unique to the territory in a lot of ways and do you know the the reasoning behind that was did they want to be able to show that footage on the Saturday morning shows? Uh, you would usually have a well, I'll give an example Jackson, Tennessee, which is about an hour northwest of Memphis. The, on Saturday nights, they would play an hour show of that previous Monday night's cards. Oh wow. Of the matches, and I would love to have had that. I mean, yeah. that would just would have been amazing. Uh, so they were using it for there, and I guess it just worked. They they liked it. They did it. They they would wrestle once, I think once a month, maybe once or twice a month in Jackson. They had a little coliseum up there called Omen Arena. It's called that now, but it used to be called something else. But anyways, it's like a miniature coliseum. It holds about 5,000 people. But the outside looks exactly like the Mid-South Coliseum. And anyways, that's doesn't matter <laughs> uh, the, the thing about the footage is that they would usually more nine times out of ten they would show you what happened the previous monday night for certain matches the the, the important things like the lawler matches 
they would give a recap of what happened if Lawler won, lost, whatever, and you know how it happened. And then they would do the same thing. It became they would do the same thing with the fabulous ones. What happened with their match the previous week? And if it led into this week's match, or if it was a blow-off feud, they show Lawler winning or the Fabs winning, and you know. But uh, it, it became integral. I mean, it, more information's the best. It's free information. It's free. It's there. We we did this. We can tape this, and you know that gives us ten minutes on our show. We can use right. that. We're not having to produce new content. So I, th- I think that was the big thing. Was it, it, it? Even though a lot of you know whatever happened before doesn't do us any good, but they realized well you know we can use this old footage from last week, and we can you know that takes up ten minutes. We're not having to produce a new segment. Yeah. No, I mean, it's it's smart. I, I think that's one of the things, too, that sometimes people don't necessarily think about, uh, certainly not right away when considering wrestling and, and especially territorial wrestling, is that oftentimes, you know, your, your promoters, your bookers, they had to be smart about television production. They had to understand, you know, the, the timings that they had between, you know, commercial breaks. They had to understand, like, there's there's so much more that goes into it than just you know, making the matches and, and, and uh-huh. telling the stories. And I think, you know, again, that's one of those things that did make Memphis unique is that their television was, was really strong. Um, you, you know, the production values might not necessarily have been as high as some of the other territories. Um, but there, there, I don't know. There was something about that studio show that I feel like really, other than maybe, you know, Crockett, um, and, 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 and Bill Watts, like there's, you know, they really kind of tapped into something um, production-wise uh, that I think a lot of other territories didn't necessarily have in the same in the same way, um, and and that's not to say that other territories didn't have unique things of their own that set them apart. Sure, but sure. but yeah, I felt like Memphis's television show was just always really strong from what I've seen. I think the big thing on that was the involvement of Lance Russell and Dave Brown. Mm. Dave was a local weatherman on TV. He understood, you know, when you got commercials. How, you know, the time you got, and Lance, Lance was the program director at Channel 13 while they were there. Right. He'd been the program director since 1960 until they left in 77 to go to Channel 5. And so he had been, you know, he was the actual producer of the TV, the program director, whatever you want to call it. He ran the station. So he got, you know, the time, how important time is, get this segment done up, get this over with, get us out of here, get us back in. He knew all that in and out, you know, and so that really, uh, that was what made that show so tight. He knew the numbers. He knew the time. When things started needing to wrap up, he knew to start wrapping it up. Yeah. And and it, it just made it very tight, very tight. Yeah, it's incredible because, uh, you know, certainly... Lawler is, you know, the face of the promotion in so many ways. And, you know, and, and, and even, you know, if, if he wasn't on top, you know, Dundee usually was, you know, for, for mm-hmm. a while there. But, but in a lot of ways, Lance Russell was kind of the star of the show. Like he was the oh. guy that was there from, you know, the minute he welcomed you to the TV program until they signed off at the end. Like he was there yeah. the whole time. Yeah, he was on camera every second of the show. Him and Dave both were there every second of the show, and that's the thing. And people talk about Lawler having a lot of time on the show. Yeah, but you look at the other people. You look in from 1980 through 1985 when he left, but Jimmy Hart was out there four or five times every show right? as well. Hart arguably had more face time on the show than Lawler did. Yeah, And Lance had more than any of them. So, you know, it. but it worked. They, they could pull that off, and it was... You know, you tell people that's a live show and they watch it, they're just amazed at this. Like, how did they get all that 
and they did it every week, yeah. just like that. So, uh, you know, I'm curious, um, you know, uh, obviously he's no longer with us, which is, which is just such a shame, but uh, what, are, what are some of your favorite memories of Lance Russell? Oh, Lance was so good. He was so smooth, and he was, uh, he was like every in the area here in Memphis. It was like he was everybody's granddad type thing. <laughs> he was looked at. He was respected. He was revered. Uh, he, he was looked to keep order on the show. You know, he ran it, and uh, he was just so cool. Uh, some of my favorite memories, man. Always loved the deal. I guess it was '86 when they had. I guess late 86, they had a deal with Tojo managing, um, wasn't Onita and Fuji was the other one, Sato and Goto. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were going against, I guess it was Jeff Jarrett and Pat Tanaka. And they had a big feud and they were going to pour paint on Jeff. And anyways, he ran, Jeff ran out and they poured it on Tojo and they beat the fire out of people and were hitting them with the kendo sticks and just bloodying them up and whatever. They, They got them broken up and, Tojo threatened to hit Lance, and Lance came in and he said, look, I got this bell hammer back here, and you come at me, you might kill me, but I'll get you with one good hit, Tojo, right in the head. It was great. Yeah. It was great. Lance yeah. was just so funny. He was, and the greatest thing was, luckily I got to know him away from the TV, and it yeah. was, he, the, he's the same guy. There is no difference. The Lance Russell on TV was the Lance Russell in the real world. Mm. And that's nice. A lot of guys you talk to, like Handsome Jimmy. Handsome Jimmy on TV is not the Handsome Jimmy in the real world. (laughs) (laughs) And Lance was, though. That's what was so fun. And uh, he was, Lance was Lance. There was no difference. And he was just the sweetest, nicest guy in the world. He would talk to any, you know, anybody. Uh, The last few years of his life, I uh, helped his sons kind of get hooked up with some people who, because they wanted they had heard how people loved their dad or whatever, and and they did. Yeah. And so I kind of hooked him up with some different people, put it on comic cons and wrestling shows and whatnot. And he was able to go out and do like a little tour for a couple of years. Mm. And he got to hear all the fans. And they just, you know, opened their hearts to Lance. They told him how much they loved him and how much he meant to him. And I think, you know, been talking to his sons about it and Lance, it meant the world to him to hear that. You know, he was 90 years old, and uh, he was hearing all this stuff. And it... it it, it was pretty wild. It was pretty wild. He yeah. was just an amazing, sweet man. So, yeah, it's, it's meaningful, impactful, you know. I think it, uh, um, it is incredible. And, and everything that I've seen from him, whether, you know, there, there, there are a couple of interviews out there. And uh, I know from, like, some of the fan fests, some of the roundtables and things, uh, he just... Yeah, he's he's he seemed to be absolutely incredible, uh, down to earth, um, mm-hmm. you know, so well spoken, articulate, obviously, and uh, I, I would have loved to have had the chance to meet him. Uh, it, it, one of my favorite moments that I've that I've been able to see through you know the the, the courtesy of all this footage is uh, there's a Christmas episode that they did of the show, and he's trying to get Lawler to wish the people a Merry Christmas at home, and Lawler won't do it, and it's yeah. just I just think it's just so funny the way. That that Lance keeps after him to, you know, he's like, I want you to wish these people a Merry Christmas. If you're not here to wish them a Merry Christmas, I don't want you on here. And it's just, he, like you said, he is, he's kind of like everybody's grandfather. It's kind of like, look, yeah. this is what you're going to do. If you're not going to do it, then go, you go to your room. <laughs> yeah, there was a no nonsense there. Just look, do it or get out. I don't yeah. care. Yeah. Choice, but yeah, he was, he was great. He could, 
he just worked so well with the wrestling his the way he was and it, it was wonderful yeah well and it's lovely because you know for the most part he kind of does play the straight man to you know to, to whatever the wrestlers are, are, are doing oh, yeah. Oh, yeah um always always a straight man yeah but but then there are those couple times when he does kind of get pushed just a little bit like the like that tojo moment that you mentioned where it's just he sort of like you know I, you know <laughs> I, I can give as good as you get you know um so obviously, you know, one of the reasons why we're having this conversation right now is because Phil Singer Games is producing a Memphis-themed Legends of Wrestling expansion set and uh, coming out in, in December. And we've assembled, you know, quite a roster of Memphis talent. You know, there, there are uh, obviously some names missing because that's just the way it goes when you're trying to get people to, oh, yeah. you know, to sign on. It's like not everybody is, is, is able to for one reason or another. Um, but it is a pretty amazing roster. And the first guy that we were able to announce and we did an interview with him at one of our little virtual conventions that we had um in october is austin idol um, there you go. Yeah, and I mean, he was so great. Uh, you know, the opportunity to interview him uh, was a lot of fun, and uh, you know, really just enjoyed talking to him and, and hearing about his career and hearing about his thoughts on, you know, on Memphis and some of you know the more memorable things uh, that he did there. Uh, so, uh, you know, the floor is yours, Mark. I I want to be able to kind of put these names in front of you uh, that we have for the set and get your thoughts on them. So let's start off with Austin Idol. Yeah, he came in originally in, uh, I want to say it was like December of 78. And this is a little bit after, he had been a, I guess you could describe it as a weightlifter type body. And when the, there was a plane crash with him, Gary Hart, Johnny Valentine, and Buddy Colt, and uh, damaged his feet pretty bad, he kind of did a re- he reimagined his character and came back as Austin Idol. And he had gone from that bulky look to a muscular, very muscular, very streamlined look. And it, uh, it worked with Austin's, you know, his, uh, his, the way he carried himself was just so good, arrogant and, you know, above you and, and it worked with that, that body he had. And he came in and, uh, he was really Memphis's first, super muscular guy that came through the territory. Mm. You'd had some muscle guys like Joe LaDuke who were just bulky and very strong, but I mean, he had the bodybuilder look yeah. and he was the first one that came through and he came through and fought Lawler in 79. And then, uh, he ended up coming back in 83 and had a little tiny bit of a few, but before they did it, they flipped him baby face and he was teaming with Lawler and it just, it worked so well. The fans had wanted, they like that personality. There's certain guys Memphis always liked. You had guys like Rocky Johnson, Jerry Lawler, Dundee, Jimmy Valiant was a big one. Austin Idol was one of those guys that the fans just, they just loved him. And, uh, of course, his big deal match was with Lawler in 87, early, 80, uh, I guess, April 87, when he shaved Lawler's head. So, right. in that cage match, Tommy Rich hanging under the ring. So, it, uh, it, it, it worked. It worked. He uh, was one of those guys very flamboyant, very fun to watch, good ring work, good, I mean, amazing mic work. Yeah. And uh, no, he's a great one for the set. Yeah, and, you know, and I think that one of the things that's so interesting is the fact that he, you know, would stay for a while, go away, and then come back. And he did that a few times. Um, and each time he came back, he you know kind of almost immediately had that, that placement on the card that put him in that main event scene. Absolutely. It, uh, he, he knew when it was going to start getting old, his, his deal. 
And when it started getting old, it's like, look, I'm not gonna let it. I'm not gonna let my image tarnish. I'm gonna just go go ahead and head home. And so it, it, you know, he'd come in and get the pop and stay a while until it, you know, started wear off a little bit. Then he would just head back to Florida. And uh, it, that was his deal. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the next name that that we announced was actually uh, a guy that had been released prior in the uh, black and white sets um, um, a while back, uh, which is one of the great things kind of about doing these new color cards is that we get the opportunity to update some of these guys. And I, I know that this next guy is somebody that you had a hand in kind of helping the Legends team with, uh, and that's none other than superstar Bill Dundee. Uh, obviously, you helped him write you know, his book, uh, I know, you know, we, we exchanged, uh, I, I think, uh, texts at one point, uh, a while back. And you mentioned that, you know, I was going to be jealous cause you were having lunch with, with Bill Dundee. And, uh, so he's obviously someone that, you know, um, um, tell us about Bill Dundee and what he means to Memphis, because I feel like in some ways the mainstream like wrestling fan that knows a little bit about Memphis, they know Lawler, but they don't always, you know, they might know Dundee's name, but they don't necessarily understand how important he was to Memphis. Yeah. They, the, Memphis had a booking committee. It was run by Jerry Jarrett mostly, but if anybody in the wrestlers realm wanted to come in and be on it, they could. Most of 99% of them didn't. Dundee wanted to. He wanted to learn about booking, and he did. Uh, and, and he was usually on the booking committee. Like I, to, you know, I mentioned that he had been on, uh, he was kind of like the sergeant in arms that he would go to, the, he had become that trusted in promotion by around 1980 or so, 80, 81, that he would go to each show. He was a guy going to each show, collecting the money, doing all that for Jerry Jarrett. Uh, there were times he booked in Memphis. Uh, he had actually gone. If you look to Bill Watts' biggest time uh, was when the Rock and Roll Express came in, the Midnight Express, and those guys. Dundee came down with him. He was the one booking all of that for Bill Watts. Yeah, because Watts, prior to that point, like he he didn't necessarily really book a lot of you know smaller guys, if you will. No, he had monsters. He yeah. had big, giant monsters, and it, was, it had burned the area out. And he had come to... Watts had come to Jerry Jarrett and asked, hey, I need help. He says, well, I can send Dundee down to book for you. And, um, you know, Bill will pick some guys out and bring them down to you. And the way it happened was Bill picked the Rock and Roll Express because Fabs weren't going to go. They couldn't work with them, but the Fab, but the, the Rock and Roll were hungry. They wanted to, you know, become a big deal. Yeah. So he knew he could work with them. Bobby Eaton was his son-in-law. <laughs> and he had Dennis Condry. And Jim, he wasn't going to get Jimmy Hart, but he could get Jimmy Cornette. So he took those guys down, and he, I think he ended up also taking like um, uh, Dutch Mantel and him, and they went down there and just set the wrestling world on fire. Yeah, they, they literally took in twenty-one million in eighteen months for a regional territory. That's what they did under Bill in that eighteen-month period from uh, January of eighty-four, I believe, until through June of 85, if I'm not mistaken. That's, I think that's right. Yeah. January 84 through June of 85. And it just did, you know, it made him. Bill ended up going for a while to a WC, or back then to Crockett and doing some booking there with Dusty and the guys. But uh, his time in Memphis was what he's most known for. And, I mean, he was a little guy. He was the underdog. He played that role very well. And it just, he, the fans liked him. He, he, he endeared himself to the fans. He was from, I guess, late 75 through 
summer of 83, he'd always been a baby face. Um, <clears throat> and at that, you know, that six, seven years there really ingrained himself to the Memphis fans. Yeah, I, you know, he's one of those guys that I think I've just always been kind of fascinated with, um, even before I really knew who he was. Um, but now, obviously, since reading the book, seeing, you know, seeing the footage, uh, I just think that he's, he really is an incredible talent. And, and he's one of those guys that oftentimes, you know, people say because of his size, you know, he, he wouldn't have necessarily gotten over, you know, elsewhere as, as much as he did in Memphis. And, you know, I think in some ways they're kind of missing the point because the thing is, is like he didn't have to. Like he, you know, he, he could do what he did where he did it and do it very, very well. Um, and, and he was just an incredible storyteller. Uh, in the ring, you know, that, that you mentioned the soap opera earlier. I think that, you know, he was one of the, the, the leads of, of Jerry yes. Jarrett's soap opera, uh, for, for years. And, uh, he, he understood the psychology of it. He knew how important the psychology was and how well it, when you, it's all pre-programmed in all of our brains, the way psychology works. It is what our brains are. And it, he, once you understand that you can do a lot of things and manipulate a lot of things. And he was able to do that. He's, I mean, he's one of the best, you know, I mean, obviously people talk about a guy like Ricky Morton, for instance, which they should, but he was one of the best at being able to sell as, I mean, right up until that point oh, without yeah. dying. You know what I mean? Like there's that, there's a, there's, there's that point where it's like, well, okay, we want you to sell, but don't die. And he could do that just about better than anybody. Like I, some of those matches, seeing him, you know, just busted up and bloody and, you know, rolling mm-hmm. around on the mat and, and you think, and you think this guy's out, you know, he's, he's got nothing left. And then all of a sudden he gets that comeback. And I feel like his comebacks were unique too because you know Lawler would have kind of those almost like um well and they say that Hogan got a little bit of his hulking up from Lawler but he would yeah. kind of hulk up a little bit he'd be you know he'd be fired up he'd come back and 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 Dundee he you know he kind of had that but really he did it in such a way that you saw a guy who was on his last legs coming back as opposed to a guy mm-hmm. who all of a sudden was pulling on this like you know reserve of strength to just be Superman all of a sudden yeah, yeah, and it, you know it would start with like one punch, and then uh, yeah. you know oh is he going to oh he did connect oh and then he'd get another punch in, and then another punch and stuff. So yeah, yeah, I mean it, it, it it's and like I said, it's that psychology that that's what people want to see, and you know you give them that payoff eventually, exactly like right Ricky did. Yeah, you know, and Ricky started in Memphis too, and it's like that's part of that. It's like they saw it, they did it every Monday night on the undercards when they were younger. You just you learned. Yeah, I mean it's it's incredible. It's like you know, sometimes watching some of those matches, it really is just like going to school. You know, I mean I'm I'm way past the point of ever being able to step into a ring or anything. But if I was, uh, I, I I would you know I'd be watching this footage, you know, again like like I said like I was in school because there's so much to be learned from it. Um, the next name that was announced, a guy who kind of came along a little bit later in the history of the territory, is Brickhouse Brown. Um, oh yeah. What can you tell us about Brickhouse Brown? He came around, I want to say it was 87 or 88, he came, finally came out and into Memphis. And uh, Memphis had lost, uh, I think Coco was gone and some other guys were gone. And um, I'm trying to think, Soul Train Jones, which is Virgil, had gone, I believe, by then to WWF. Mm-hmm. Um, i trying to think who else. Memphis always tried to have a nice roster of, of African-American wrestlers on the thing because, you know, a lot of the fans were. They wanted them to be able to, you know, enjoy the shows. You know, Memphis would have a nice cross-section of, I guess, 
you could say all denominations. Uh, and you know, he, he was solid. Uh, Brickhouse could talk, he could work, he had a good physique, good build, and he could get in there with any of them. And it just worked for the territory. Um, I mean, he was there for several years, I know, and great talker, great yeah. talker. I, I kind of compare him to, whereas Austin Idol wasn't the best scientific wrestler, he could talk his tail off. And <laughs> Brookhouse could do better in the ring, but Brookhouse could talk, talk, talk all day long. And it worked. It worked. I, yeah, as I was watching footage of him, I just like came away with this sense of feeling like, what an underrated guy, like somebody that I'm surprised never got, you know, a larger stage because that's exactly my feeling watching him. I'm like, man, this guy can really talk. He can really go in the ring. He looks like a million bucks. You know, he had a great body. Like I, it's so strange because yeah, he just, he didn't necessarily ever make that big jump, but man, you know, how, how, how lucky are we that he did, you know, all the stuff that he did in Memphis because he was involved in some really, you know, some kind of out there, you know, angles, uh, especially for today, much less the time. Um, but he started, he started as a heel and he transitioned to babyface, right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. a lot of guys, young, not younger, but a lot of guys who were good talkers, that's what they tried to do. Because mm. if they could talk you into not liking them, it means you're going to buy a ticket to see them get beat. <laughs> and if you keep talking and you can talk well, just like the Austin Idol, just like Brickhouse, you're going to start wanting to listen to them when they're talking bad. If they're, and you don't even realize it, but you're liking them. Yeah. And then eventually, if it's working well enough, let's flip them to a baby and see if it works. And it did work. You know, same with Austin Idol, same with him. Um, uh, you know, you look back a couple of years back in 83 when the Road Warriors came on, you know, people love to see them beat the fire out of everybody. It didn't matter who they were beating up. They just wanted to see it. Then the interviews made you laugh. <laughs> and it was easy to flip them to baby face. So it, it's the same thing that, you know, it's that formula and it worked well. Uh, he, he, he was a very talented on the mic. So if he had been a little bit bigger, a little taller, a little more weight, I think he would have had a good run with Vince. Uh, I, I I just don't think he was big enough. Yeah, that's a, that is. Meaning his height, he was a he was very trim, very well built. Don't get me wrong on that. I mean, perfect shape, everything. But just I just think he was a little smaller. Yeah, you're right. I think that might have been what held him back. That's a very, very, very good point. I think you're absolutely right about that, especially considering the time and the place. You know, he's, it's like it's like if, if we were talking about a guy, maybe you know, maybe in the mid to late '90s, or you, you know, even like early 2000s. You know, might be a different story, but certainly, yeah, the mid mid to late '80s, probably not going to New York. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I might be wrong on this, but I figured he'd probably weigh 225 ish. I yeah, I, think, I don't know that. I mean, if he was 250, 260, I think it would have done him a lot better. But I, I think it was probably size, if anything. Yeah. Um, well, here's two guys that had no problem with size uh, and, and definitely had some time in, in New York with Vince. Uh, and, and the latest announcement for the Legends of Wrestling expansion, and that, uh, that would be the Moondogs, Rex, and Spot. Um, yes. Tell us about the Moondogs. They were great. I mean, they just were, they were just destruction. Uh, <laughs> it worked well. Um, you know, they had been with Vince for a quick run with the world tag titles up there. I guess they, I don't know who they beat Martel and Gurria, maybe. Yep. Yep. I, I can't remember off the top of my head. 
It was a lot of years ago. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it was Rick Martel okay, and Tony okay. Gurria. Yeah. yeah, so it was a good team they beat. Everybody loved that team. And so they you know, they came back down here to Memphis, and they went into a feud with the fabulous ones who were, you know, and that's when we talked before about the Fabs. I think the big thing with the Fabs was they were cool on one hand, but then they could fight. And that's what, you know, the girls liked that they were cool, and the guys liked that they could fight. Not just scientific wrestle, and you know yeah. the feud they had with Ming Dogs, uh, it was just amazing. It's uh, there's a couple of feuds that Ming Dog, I'm sorry, the Fabs had, me not in order, but my favorite feuds they ever had were against the Sheep Herders, they were against uh, the Assassins, and against obviously the Ming Dogs. They that was just an amazing feud. They were just, it was just total destruction every week and. <laughs> More times than not, I, I, I mean, honest to goodness, I mean, if they got a pinfall out of the match, it was amazing because there's usually a DQ or out of the ring or double count outs. Uh, they, they were just great. Um, Larry Latham was one of them, and he had been in Memphis before. He had teamed with Wayne Ferris back in 79 as uh, the Blonde Bombers. He yeah. talked earlier about the uh, concession stand brawl. that He had been in the concession stand brawl with Wayne Ferris and Lawler and Dundee and Tupelo. Right. And uh, Randy Coley was the other one, and he didn't, I don't believe he had been in Memphis before or again after the Moondogs. That was his only time in Memphis. And uh, they just, they looked the part. They were the part. You had Jimmy Hart running around with a little red, uh, little red, uh, kind of like a construction cap on that you would do orange ones, but it was painted red. And he'd be blowing a whistle for the Moondogs and <laughs> riling the fans up and, and Fargo came back for a couple matches with them, with Stan and Steve against them and stuff. So it was, it was mayhem. It was total mayhem. Yeah, it was really interesting doing you know, doing some of the research uh, about the Moon Dogs um, and, and you know and their feud with the Fabulous Ones um, and just yeah the, the mayhem like you said I mean anything you could imagine blood and guts and you know and everything in between any object uh, that they could get their hands on uh, and I think that that's the thing is it's like yeah they all they always felt like you know fights. Um, that the, you know, these four guys really wanted to get in there and kill one another, and and, and yeah. it, uh, uh, it paid off. You know, like you said, they, the green was their favorite color. Well, they made plenty of it. Um, yes. But speaking of, uh, I, I want to give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about what you're doing right now. If there's anything else coming up on the pipeline, uh, you know, feel free to to plug the website again and, and anything else that you're that you're working on, because uh, I'm sure that the people that have that have listened would love to, you know, to hear more, see more, read more from you. Um, I, again, it's always been such a pleasure to read your material, and I, I think that there are few people I know that have spent, you know, as, as much time and been so passionate about putting together these histories of these different territories, whether it is obviously Memphis, which seems to be your first love, uh, uh, rightfully so, that's, you know, that's where you're from, but, uh, but also, you know, the stuff you've done with Crockett and Mid-South and AWA and Houston, your Houston book, I mean, man, that's one of my favorite books with the collection of programs, just seeing what Paul Bosch put together in like 82 and 83, it's, I love that book so much, um, but, but the Memphis books, the, the, you know, the 78 book, uh, the 82 book, um, there's just, the, the, those books are so great, you know, 
reading about the history of everything as it went down, especially with the you know the Jarrett split and 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 the formation of of everything that they did and all the stuff he put together in his first year. It's 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 just incredible stuff, Mark. And I'm such a big fan of yours. So I just want to give you the opportunity to tell everybody about what you've got going on, what you've got out there, and how they can find you. Sure, uh, I'm, I'm working on a book. It's nowhere near half done yet but i am working on actually two books so there is something in the pipeline can't really talk about it yet um sure as far as my books that are done they're they're, most of them are on amazon Uh, just go to markjamesbooks.com it's got my book page on my website it's got all the books listed you click on it it'll take you to a link that'll take you to the amazon page uh do some shirts old mythos shirts markjamesshirts.com markjamesshirt.com for two different sites uh we, uh, hopefully more shows going to come up. We do love going and actually seeing and talking to the fans at shows. Uh, so hopefully that'll come around more. Uh, other than that, that, that's pretty much it for right now. Well, I, you know, I, I'm very excited. I can't wait to, to hear more about, uh, what, what's coming next and what you're working on. Um, again, I'm, I'm, you know, I really am a big fan and it was such a pleasure to meet you at, at all in and pick up a few books then, uh, and then just pick up more since then. Um, you know, I didn't even mention the Tuesday night at the gardens book, uh, which I know you did with uh, Jim Cornette. I, I think yep. that book is just that book. The thing that I love so much about the book, and I think I actually sent you a message, uh, telling you this at one point is that, you know, it does so much more than just talk about Tuesday night at the gardens. The the early chapters of that book really kind of helped to set the table for just professional wrestling history in North America in general. And you get this great sense about how important Louisville was to the, the tapestry of North American wrestling and the history of North American wrestling. And, you know, some of the big names that were coming through there, obviously like, you know, Ed Lewis or, or Luthez. And, uh, I, I mean, that's just another, I mean, I could, I could literally do an episode with you where we talk about each book individually over, you know, one episode <laughs> devoted to each book, because I, again, I, I, I'm, I'm such a fan and I, and I love your work. Um, and you know, I think that, uh, the, you know, this past year at the Tragos Fez, uh, professional wrestling hall of fame, you were honored with the James C. Melby award, um, which recognizes excellence in professional wrestling writing or historical preservation. And, uh, I think it's just incredibly well-deserved. Um, but the funny thing about that, uh, from my point of view is I, uh, was supposed to be there and I ended up sending you a message um, a while it was not that long before the event was supposed to take place and you said you weren't going and uh, and I was like oh that's too bad it would have been nice to see you and then just a week or two after that I was talking with our friend at uh, the podcast uh, Chad Olson who's a member of the yes. Legends team and Chad does the uh, Uncharted Territory podcast as well and uh, and Chad told me that you were going to be honored there and I was like I just asked him a couple weeks ago he was going he said he wasn't and he's like well he wasn't kayfabing yet he he didn't know because we just told him a couple <laughs> days ago uh, so I, I was I was too bad I couldn't be there but I'm I'm so happy for you because again I think it's just richly deserved thank you man I really appreciate it yeah that it was a blast going there love being at that place yeah, yeah. I, I'm. I'm. My plan is to. I don't know if you're going to make it in 2022, but I'm. I'm definitely going to be there in 2022. So if you're if you're there, I'll see you then. If not, maybe I'll, I'll be able to catch you at some point down the road. But uh, this has been an absolute pleasure. I, I again, I can't thank you enough, and I hope to do it again sometime. I really appreciate you having me on. It was a blast. Awesome. Well, thank you, Mark. Take care of yourself. Okay. Thanks. Mm, bye.
Again, I want to uh, send a heartfelt thanks to Mark James. Uh, it was so much fun to interview him. And I will say there might be some uh, some little, little tidbits that we saved that we didn't include that you'll be hearing in the weeks to come. Uh, Mark, Mark James might've gotten an exclusive preview. So, you know, um, don't be hitting him up. Don't be no, don't, DMs to yeah. Mark James. That's right. Spoilers. <laughs> we know, we know who's thinking about that. We know you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, he's sworn to secrecy, but, uh, he's an awesome guy. And obviously, you know, just again, has such a, a incredible working knowledge of the history of Memphis wrestling and wrestling in general. He's so knowledgeable about so many of the territories. You know, you, you heard him spitting off facts about Jim Crockett and Bill Watts and, you know, and, and other promotions. And, and I just think that, you know, I did not necessarily know what to expect when I talked to him for the first time. And I kind of thought like, Oh, he's a Memphis guy. He, you know, he's got all these Memphis books. And then I realized I saw this book, this Jim Crockett book uh, on the table as well. And I was like, Oh, so he does a little bit of everything, I guess. And, and in getting to kind of, you know, know him uh, somewhat. Uh, yeah. It's just incredible. His, his base of knowledge is, is, is huge. Uh, and another one of my favorite books of his that I mentioned in the interview is that Houston wrestling program book um, from 82 to 83. And just seeing some of the cards that Paul Bosch put together out of this world. I mean, he was bringing in, I mean, in a way, the Houston territory was like the super indie of its day, if you will, because he didn't run shows the same way that a lot of other territories did, but he would put together cards with the top stars from all over the country. And he would just jam pack them into one card and it was go time. Um, And, you know, just, yeah, that, that book is, is a really great time capsule as well. So, um, yeah, I, he's got he's got some other stuff coming out. I'm really looking forward to, and uh, he kind of teased that a little bit. So again, uh, Mark James, hit him up at MemphisWrestlingHistory.com. Um, great guy, super knowledgeable. Hope to have him back on the show. Uh, you'll certainly be hearing his voice again. And uh, yeah, yeah, no, awesome. So cool that we were able to that you're able to have Mark on here. I mean, is that when we're talking about you know. Uh, Memphis, you know, there, there's few people I think that could be, you know, a better guest to have on to really kind of help, you know, explain the history of the territory. So really huge thank you uh, to Mark for joining here and, and providing uh, so much great information and so many cool stories. Yeah, um, I, I, I'm, I'm grateful to him. I'm indebted to him. And I think he's going to be, um, you know, a great friend of the show, hopefully for for many, many episodes to come. Yes, um, you know, one last thing I wanted to, uh, I wanted to do something I haven't done really yet, uh, which was to take a quick look into my current promotion, um, the Central States Wrestling Legends Fed that I run. Uh, and mainly this is because I wanted to pose a question to the tournament master. Mm-hmm. I haven't prepped him on this, so this okay. is going to be right on the fly. Recently, Johnny Valentine, the NWA Central States heavyweight champion, bested Mm -hmm. Luthez in a two out of three falls match for the NWA world's heavyweight championship. Now, of course, by winning this match, it means that he must relinquish his title. Yes. uh, The central States title. So once he does that, you know what I got to do? It's a tournament. I'd have a tournament. So the question is, what should I do, Todd? Hmm. 
keep in mind, this is a legends fed. I kind of try to steer myself towards like kind of a late seventies, early eighties vibe, right. you know? So I don't want to get too, too crazy yet. No, 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 no. no. I, mean, I mean, I'm yeah. thinking that most we're looking at like an eight man single elimination tournament. I yeah. Mean, that's, that's, that's your typical for like a, you know, regional title like that. If we need to find a new champion there to me, a good old, you know, eight man single elimination tournaments, the way to go. I love it. There you have it. Tournament master has helped me to figure that out. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Central States wrestling viewers. You will be seeing that eight man single elimination tournament for the NWA central States heavyweight championship coming up soon. Uh, I've been having a lot of fun rolling out cards lately. I've been rolling out uh, stuff uh, a little bit more, uh, frequently than i had been which is crazy considering that you know there's a three week old in the house and (laughs) running on four hours of sleep but somehow it works so um it's been it's been fun um you know what else has been fun spending time with you as usual uh i i i always look forward to doing this and uh, i'm just grateful for the opportunity to you know to be on this podcast uh, to have this podcast going and to have people listening uh and you know i thank you all for for your comments your support and uh look forward to you know to continue in the conversation as usual so um don't be shy you can you can tell us what you like and what you don't like uh we're we're always all ears um and free feel free to tell us this coming friday that's when we have our philistinger games game night so still a little bit of time to register by the time you're hearing this, but it will be this Friday, uh, November 19th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Uh, so, yeah, just to sign up, you'll see the, uh, the link on the, um, the, you know, through the main uh, website, or also, I've also posted it on the discussion board. I've PM'd it out to everybody, so there should be no excuse you should be able to find uh, the link and uh, be able to register and, and come and join us there. We'll, we'll see how it goes there. I think we've had a couple of challenges come out from some different people. Uh, we'll probably book a couple other matches on the fly uh, ECW style <laughs> as we're going on there. Um, but yeah, it should be fun. If anything, you know, just a good, you know, good night to kind of get together and, you know, we'll have the new legends teaser will have just come out. So I'm sure there'll be uh, some conversation around that. Uh, as well and uh yeah i'm sure we'll have some opportunity just to kind of you know some free form q a along with uh rolling out some matches so it should be a fun time so make sure to join us yeah you know i'm I'm looking forward to it i was going to lay out my challenge this week i know i had mentioned it the last week on the podcast but there's a but here uh, I might have the opportunity to attend an independent wrestling show uh, on that night. And uh, I will, I will definitely pack some authorization forms and see if I can't get some new folks signed to the game. So if I don't make it, I will be there trying to do the good work of Phil Singer games. Uh, but, but if I do make it, uh, we could definitely try to do some, some impromptu, you know, ECW style uh, just, just fun. It, you know, it's funny. I, I actually took a stroll on Peacock uh, earlier today. I hadn't done this in a while uh, just to see what all network content was there. Yeah. And I got to say, I was very impressed. It doesn't look like there's a whole lot missing. There's some stuff that's not there. That's disappointing for a variety of reasons, but there's a lot more stuff there than there used to be. And the ECW content in general 
Uh, there's a lot of the old like videotape shows that weren't pay-per-views, that oh, okay. weren't a hardcore TV, you know, that were the, that were the stuff that they were releasing, you know, video cassette and whatnot right. that they have on there now, which which is really cool. And some of those shows, you know, I had on on VHS, probably still have somewhere, you know, like barbed wire hoodies and choke slams, or you know, uh, uh, crossing the line again, uh, big ass extreme bash, like stuff like that. That I'm just sort of like, oh man. You know, I, I had those on tape and I'm glad to see them up there because I always felt like they were missing pieces um, of the, uh, you know, the content that they provided for ECW. And uh, so it was just kind of cool to see them there. Um, and yeah, I, I, kudos to them for getting some of that stuff up there. Uh, it's hard to find. It's buried. You got to look for it, uh, but it's there. Um, so, yeah, so I might be inspired, you know. Yep. I'll do a, do a run in. Who knows? There we go. <laughs> well, uh, is there anything else from Fed HQ? Uh, no. I'm, well, we are coming up on the big uh, Black Friday, you know, releases that are coming up there. Um, so on uh, Friday, November twenty sixth, we'll have uh, up for pre order uh, the three new game editions plus the Ringside Companion. Yeah, so lots of good stuff there. Uh, I know Mike is, uh, you know, his. Uh, the thing that's been occupying him is continuing for a little while longer, but uh, you know, I think that's uh, soon he's got to be doing a lot to lay out and uh, you know, getting us over the the finish line for some of these things. But I'm hoping to get things out, you know, in uh, very in the earlier part of December is really Ooh. my hope at this point. We'll we'll see. I'm not sure how how early we can make it, but I'm pushing to make it as early as possible. Getting everything uh, done. Warner's been doing an awesome job on the artwork, but I think he's yeah, got. He Pretty much every reference he needs, except for one that I forgot about that I uh, that I'm sending him over. Oh, come tomorrow. on, man! <laughs> Sorry, Sorry. There's, there's one man on the list. I'm like, oh, I forgot to send over that reference. So. Uh, but other than that, I think yeah, I think we're we're in good shape with everything, uh, and uh, yeah, so. Yeah, definitely remember to come that day. I think we will have a Black Friday special as well. Um, uh, yeah, some type of a discount thing as well for some older sets too, if you're interested in that. So uh, we have the um, uh, have the, the episode next week. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Fantastic, fantastic. Uh, any idea when the the Chikara deal might go live? That we mentioned oh yes, episode? you know I didn't. Uh, that'll definitely be up before Black Friday as well. Awesome, so. awesome. I know, I know. Some people are looking forward to it, and I, there's been some mention of uh, you know people that wanted to to pull the trigger on that. So cool. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll get that up uh, sooner rather than later. Yeah. Excellent, 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 excellent. Um, well, you know. I, I, I can certainly hope that Santa Wolf comes early for us all. Uh, it'll be it'll be a heck of a lot of fun to to get that beautiful little package in the mail. Um, whenever it gets there, though, even even if it's uh, you know after the holidays. Um, you want to give hopefully quick- not as late as last year though. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that wasn't your fault. Uh, I want to give a quick shout out to uh, to Lee and KB uh, and. Uh, Vegas and Rob and Troy and everybody else who commented, um, uh, LA Wraith and, 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 uh, 
Pete Beck, uh, who commented on the boards um, on the last episode, much appreciated, and uh, lots of lots of good reminiscences about uh, Chikara, and um, you know just some of the comments about um, you know that Rob made too about you know the way that he puts FTR together and, and kind of his fond memories of Chikara, seeing those parallels um, clearly, and, and so always always cool, like I said, to kind of continue the conversation over there. Um, also wanted to mention that our friends over at Uncharted Territory, of course, have, as usual, been tearing it up with some great content, excellent episodes. Um, I have not had the chance to listen to their latest, unfortunately, but I, I can't wait to do so. Um, so uh, obviously, like I say, every time, every week, if, if you're listening to this, you're probably listening to them. But if you're not, what are you doing? Download their podcast as soon as you stop listening to ours. Um, and don't forget, of course, the Phil Searing Games fan podcast that Grant runs, um, doing lots of fun stuff over there. Lee's got the Dizzy Dice and the Classic Wrestling podcast. Uh, we got Brock Atkinson with his NDW over at Twitch. Uh, lots of cool stuff. Amazing stuff. I hope to see more of it um, than I can remember to talk about. I already feel like that that, that is the case. So if I missed you, I apologize. Uh, and at the very least, if you're listening to this, hop over on the boards. Just randomly click on one of the feds. Start reading, you know, whether it's Indies or Legends or COTG, just read a Fed. There's so much fun stuff. People are sharing their results. Uh, there's always really good conversations. I don't get to comment on everything, but I try to at least like everything I'm reading. But even then, sometimes I forget uh, if it's late at night, I'm just scrolling on my phone. So um, always grateful for the community. And uh, I am, I'm, again, grateful to be in, in this position, um, trying to hold the mantle of Johnny Rocket as best I can. Uh, <laughs> Todd. I think it's time for us to get out of here. What do you say? Oh yeah. <laughs> time to go, but uh, no, great, great, uh, great to be on here. And uh, you know, a great interview this week with Mark and uh, we'll be back next week. And I think uh, I'm uh, getting in the mood for some tournaments. Oh yeah. I can't wait. Uh, I will close on this note. And that is make sure you are paying attention on black Friday. After all the pre-order announcements are down, there is no way you're going to want to miss these sets. If you are even remotely interested right now, but you haven't quite gotten the hooks in deep enough, which I don't know how that's the case. I promise you after all the pre-order announcements are done, your interest will be just full on ready to go. Press that order button. You're going to get the ringside companion. You're going to get the legends of wrestling expansion eight, uh, with the Memphis theme, you, you're going to get the Women of the Indies International Edition and FTR3, which we will soon have the uh, name to announce for. Uh, Todd and I know it. We're not going to tell you because that would be cheating. That's right. But you're going to love it. There's a lot of cool stuff coming your way. It's the holiday season. I hope everyone is enjoying their eggnog. Talking to you, Stu. And uh, uh, in the meantime, take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. We'll be back next week with uh, another jam-packed episode. And uh, yeah. Let's go home. Let's do it.